female folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He ripped her face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980 Right now, is it 80? Crazy. And it's also our last episode of 2023. Uh, this should be releasing around New Year's, uh, I think. So um, I hope you've had a great like Christmas break. I hope things are winding down for you. I'm going to be completely transparent with you. This this episode is actually being recorded in like late November um, because I would also like a couple of weeks off uh, as a break. So I hope you're having a good time. I hope your Christmas is great. I know most people are not... Well, I don't know. <laughs> I was about to say, I know most people aren't religious. That's wrong. Most people are religious, but I'm not. Uh, so I hope you're having a great time, whatever your faith is. And I um, hope you're gearing up for the new year, for 2024. I'll tell you what, guys. I think we might be back. 2020, ooh, COVID, bad. George Floyd died. Things were not great. 2021... Still not great. 2022, I feel like we started bouncing back. 2023, it was okay. I really feel like 2024 is the is the time where we all, you know, we hit our stride. We we, we Back in uh, 2019, people were saying, oh, we're going back to the roaring 20s, folks. It's going to be a great time. Flapper dresses, cigars, meow, see? That kind of stuff. And uh, we didn't get to do that because of COVID. Instead of Mercy and flap addresses, we got uh, lockdowns and uh, vaccines forced on us, by the way. Uh, no, I don't care about the vaccines. Uh, it's fine. I took mine. Um, I just realized I kind of sounded like an anti-vax person. I'm not. I really, I'm pro-vax. I think you should be <laughs> held down and vaccinated against your will. Um, no. <laughs> anyway, but what, what am I trying to say? That, that didn't occur, but now 2024, no more lockdowns, COVID's gone, we're heading into a new year. I mean, there is, like, this whole looming election for America, which is pretty scary. It looks like we're having a rematch of the geriatric fucks, but that's, hey, that's he neither here nor there. Um, you've got at least another year to worry about that, guys. Um, and we don't even have to worry about an election for a while. I don't even care what's happening here. It's so boring. 2024 might be the way to go. Um, but before we can look forward to 2024, it's our chance now to look back at 2023. So last week we had a goddamn three hour episode where we looked back at four of the best episodes from the previous 12 months. Uh, I had a great time listening back to them while editing them. Um, and it just reminded me how much, um, We've grown and we've changed. This show has really evolved. I feel like 2022 really, 2023, sorry, was the year where we really found our voice and we're still trying to figure it out, but um, it's been a great year and uh, I will save some of the sappiness for the end, but it's been a great year um, interacting with you guys as well as an audience. Um, I've never had a platform where I've had people I don't know who, 
you know, come up to me and message me and are, and are so lovely and so uh, grateful for the show and, and I'm grateful for them in return. It's, it's really beautiful. My background, um, as I'm sure a lot of you know, is in theatre. I'm a theatre actor in Australia. Um, and that, you know, actor-audience relationship is brilliant, but it's very different to the broadcaster-audience relationship and the podcast relationship with your audience. Um and I'm, I'm really loving it. I'm loving all the messages you guys have sent through the year. There's a few people in particular. I won't name names because it's a little embarrassing, but there are people who I know have listened to the show from very early days. And every almost every week, they'll send a message. Either it's a suggestion for a new uh, Scratch of the Day segment or a wacky weirdo of the week, or just so, just to say that they're, they're enjoying it. And um, still, I, I never get sick of that. I don't think I ever will get sick of it. So please, if you're, if you're so inclined reach out, say hi. I really will try to say back if I can. Um, We'll talk more about that sappy stuff at the end. Let's look back at 2023. Some more of my favorite episodes of the year. Now, these four, I've got four episodes lined up that I want to talk to you about today. Um, And the first one is, these these four are all from the last six months. So they're they're semi-recent. So I do remember them quite well. The first one we're going to talk about is the San Francisco Tiger Attack. Now, Tiger Attacks, um, as we know, um, are... And I say it a lot, they're kind of the bread and butter of this show. I love a good tiger attack. The first episode of the show was a tiger attack. It's still the most listened to episode. Um, The logo of the show is Tiger Mouth. I'm pretty sure it's Tiger's Mouth. It's supposed to be a Tiger's Mouth, anyway. Um, Love tiger attacks. But, to be frank, I feel like I'm kind of running out of big ones to talk about. And then I came across this story about a San Francisco tiger attack. Or tiger attack, because there were two. Um, And... I was fascinated and hooked, and it was quite recent as well. This was in the last 20 years. Um, so we're going to listen. I won't, I won't give any spoilers away. We're going to listen back to it. But, uh, yeah, a fantastic episode, a really interesting, um, you know, story. Uh, and and what the thing that stood out to me most is just the... the um, the weird legacy, or the weird future that the the people who were attacked had. One of the guys who survived the attack, he died in mysterious circumstances, um, which I always found really, really strange, really odd. Um, so we're going to listen back to that now. We're going to listen back to episode 59. This happened right after the Birds of Prey episode. So two back-to-back um, top 10 episodes, I would say, of the year. So I was really hitting my stride. And um, wow, this is in July. And we also had the... Oh, the Mountain Man Grizzly Adams, that was a good episode, and the Attack of the Cephalopods, which I'm going to talk about today. What a month that was for us. Okay, let's get into it, um, and let's talk about the, uh, the brutal, the horrific tiger attacks in San Francisco. The toxicology results are in, and the San Francisco medical examiner says Carlos Sousa Jr. had marijuana and alcohol in his system when he was attacked and killed by a tiger at the San Francisco Zoo. That attack happened on Christmas Day, when a 250-pound Siberian tiger escaped from its enclosure. At the time, there were claims that the teens and two friends who were seriously injured taunted the tiger. A lawyer for the family says why the tiger escaped and whether the boy was drinking or smoking pot are irrelevant. The family is suing the city. The autopsy report concluded the 17-year-old was killed by blunt force injuries to the head and neck. An investigation found that the wall surrounding the tiger enclosure was four feet lower than industry standards. The zoo closed for a short time after the attack to make the necessary changes to the tiger enclosure. It has since reopened. So, the San Francisco tiger attacks revolve around one tiger named Tatiana. 
two tiger attacks occurred at the San Francisco Zoo in 2006 and then in 2007, both of them involving a Siberian tiger named Tatiana, who was four years old at the time of the second incident. In the first incident, a zookeeper was bitten on the arm during a public feeding, and in the second incident, one person was actually killed and two others were badly injured before police shot and killed Tatiana on scene. Tatiana was born at the Denver Zoo uh, in 2003 on June 25th, and she was actually brought to San Francisco Zoo in 2005 at the age of about two. Um, She was there to provide the 14-year-old Siberian tiger Tony with a mate. Uh, which is uh, kind of, I guess it's like animal sex slavery, really, if you think about it. But um, it seems like she had a pretty good time at the zoo until she was killed. Tatiana had no prior record of aggression towards humans before either of these uh, events. So the first event, in December 22nd of 2006, a veteran zookeeper named Laurie Comagen was feeding Tatiana through the enclosure's grill. During the feeding, Tatiana clawed and managed to grip Comagen's right arm and pulled it through the grill and bit it. The Californian the California Occupational Safety and Health Administration later determined that the zoo had inadequate safety precautions and staff training and fined the zoo $18,000. Comagen, who underwent several surgeries and skin grafts and whose arm was severely scarred and permanently injured, sued the zoo and she settled in 2008 for an undisclosed amount. That is, that is essentially the the uh, the limits on the uh, information there for the first event. Um, you know, obviously not great that this person had their arm shredded and permanently injured, uh, but no one died. The tiger wasn't hurt. Um, so all in all, not the worst outcome, the outcome that could have happened. The tiger cage was remodeled and was reopened in September of 2007. However, four months later, a second and more bloody incident would occur. Shortly after closing time on Christmas Day of 2007, Tatiana somehow escaped from her open-air enclosure, and she killed a 17-year-old boy named Carlos Eduardo Souza Jr., and he injured brothers uh, Mritopal Paul Daliwal and Kulbir Daliwal. They were 19 and 23 years old, respectively. The three men had been witnessed throwing objects at and taunting the tiger. Now, after the attack, the two brothers fled the zoo cafe 300 yards. Sorry, they fled to the zoo cafe, which was about 270 meters away, um, which was locked at the time. An employee heard their screams and called 911 at 5.07 p.m. The emergency response was delayed, unfortunately, because the, at first the cafe owners uh, said that the call in the call that they suspected that the screaming was coming from someone who was mentally ill, and there actually wasn't an animal attack. Um, later, the uh, the emergency response was was uh, delayed uh, because the zoo security guards were enforcing a lockdown and they prevented Tatiana from escaping the zoo. There's actually a 911 call uh, from I believe Paul, no, from Coolbeer uh, Daliwal, uh, who calls 911, and you can hear just how angry and frustrated he is that the uh, paramedics haven't been let into the zoo the um the 911 uh what do, what do you call the uh the responder on the on the other end of the line she's explaining that we can't let the um we can't let the, uh, the, the, the first responders in um, because basically it's unsafe for them. And you can hear just how frustrated he is. I'm going to play that clip for you now. Um, just be aware that it's quite hard to understand what he's saying. Um, essentially, he's just he's screaming and, fi- and asking, why aren't you coming in to save us? What's with the delay? I'm just going to stay on the line with you until the paramedics are with you, all right? Okay. Can you check up on them? We'll see where they're at. They're on scene right now, but they have to stage until they're given permission to go inside. 
It's a matter of life and death. Okay, okay no, I understand that, but at the same time, we have to make sure the paramedics don't get chewed out because if the paramedics get hurt, then nobody is going to help you. Okay, I understand that. All right? I'm trying to, okay, the ambulance is staging. I need you to understand that if the ambulance people, the paramedics, okay, calm down. Right? I am going to stay on the line with you. If the paramedics get hurt, they cannot help your brother. So you need to calm down. And you are going to be the best help for your brother right now. So Can you, what's going on here? It's been, okay. I've been on you with the call with you for eight minutes. I called 10 minutes before. Okay. 20 minutes. Okay, I'm trying to explain to you that we have to make sure that we can get inside safely. All right? How long does it take? I do not know that because I'm not out there right now, but we have specialists. We have 16 different police units plus about six different paramedic and fire department personnel out there trying to. We just have to make sure that the tiger doesn't hurt any of the emergency units. Otherwise, there's going to be nobody to help you. All right. So just stay calm. I'm going to stay on the phone with you. Yeah, pretty, pretty harrowing <laughs> tape there, to be honest. Um, so. When the police did finally come in, the armed officers found Tatiana uh, with Kulbad Daliwal, but they held fire at first because they were scared of hitting the man. One of the officers, Officer Chris Oshita, which I, that's, I hope that's not how you pronounce his name, Oshita, uh, I'm not sure. Also, by the way, with this person's name, I was a little unsure. One article says his name is Chris Oshita and one other person says his name is like a Yamiko or something like that. I'm not really sure what's going on there. So I'm going to call him Chris for now, but there is a chance I'm I'm incorrect. So this officer, Chris Oshita, um, said that they found Daliwal in a seated position, bleeding profusely, and a tiger sitting at his feet, guarding him. Oshita and his partner came out of the car, yelling and screaming, trying to divert the tiger away from the Daliwal brothers. Tatiana suddenly veered towards them. When she was about 20 yards away, Oshita opened fire with his handgun. The first shot struck Tatiana in the chest, but she kept on coming. He says, I hit the other side of the chest and again, the fur moves and she flinches and now it's started to pick up speed and it's coming faster. Oshita says, I shoot the tiger in the face and I see the tiger flinch and put its head down, but it's still coming. Oshita said Tatiana was only five feet away. The officer jumped back in his car, but the window was still wide open. The tiger tried to pull itself up again, trying to get to me through the window, Oshita says. Oshita's partner fired the fatal shot that stopped Tatiana. Tatiana was ultimately killed by a gunshot wound to the forehead. The Daliwal brothers received deep bites and claw marks on their heads, necks, arms, and hands. They left the hospital on December 29, four days later. Susa was found dead near the Tiger Grotto with blunt force trauma to the head and neck being the cause of death. There were many punctures and scratches to his head, neck and chest, skull and spinal fractures and a cut to his jugular vein. The Association of Zoos and Aquariums said that the attack was the first time a visitor had been killed by an escaped animal at a member zoo since the association's founding in 1924. The zoo was closed until January 3rd of 2008. Keeping in mind, that's only about like a week and a half over the Christmas period, so it's not like they lost a lot of business there. It was not immediately apparent how Tatiana had managed to escape, but the police said Tatiana may have leaped or climbed the walls of her enclosure. 
Police undertook an investigation to determine whether one of the victims climbed over a waist-high fence and then dangled a leg or another body part over the ledge of the moat around the tiger enclosure. Two days after the attack on December 27th of 2007, the zoo reported that while the moat at 33 feet wide was sufficient by national standards, its claim that the grotto's moat wall was 18 feet tall was incorrect. Officials measured it at 12.5 feet tall, substantially lower than in their initial report, and substantially lower than the AZA recommended 16.5 feet for such enclosures. Tatiana's rear paws were embedded with concrete chips, suggesting that she'd pushed against the moat wall during her escape. In the days immediately following the attack, the director of the zoo stated that Tatiana was probably provoked. He said, Somebody created a situation which really agitated her and gave her some sort of method to break out. There is no possible way that the cat could have made it out of there in one single leap. I would surmise that there was help. A couple of feet dangling over the edge could possibly have done it. Sources told the San Francisco Chronicle that pine cones and sticks that might have been thrown by Tatiana had been found, which could not have landed in the vicinity naturally. Paul Daliwal said that three, that three had yelled and waved at the tiger. According to news sources, Daliwal bro- the Daliwal brothers had slingshots on them uh, at the time of the attack. In later reports, the police denied that the slingshots were found in the victim's car or at the zoo. Zoo visitor Jennifer Miller and her family allegedly saw the group of men, including an unidentified fourth person, taunting lions less than an hour before the tiger attack. She later identified Carlos Sousa as being part of the group, but said that Sousa did not join in in the taunting. An attorney representing the Daliwell brothers stated that they had not taunted the tiger. However, I am fairly certain that I read that one of the brothers did admit later on that they had antagonized the tiger. In early January of 2008, the lead investigator for the city said that the men had harassed Tatiana, but no charges were filed against them for such behavior. In San Francisco, it's a misdemeanor offense to taunt a zoo animal, which is an interesting little fact, and I wonder where that's true everywhere else. I went to the zoo recently, and I I taunted one of the uh, the monkeys. I kind of just flipped him off a little bit. I hope I don't get in trouble. Toxicology reports disclosed in mid-January indicated a blood alcohol level of 0.16 for the 19-year-old Amitrapal Daliwal, twice the legal limit for operating a motor vehicle, and that alcohol was also present but under the legal limits for Kulbir uh, Daliwal, who was 23 years old, and for Carlos Sousa, who was 17. There was also evidence of cannabis use amongst all three. Reporters also noted that police found a small amount of marijuana in Coolbeer Daliwal's 2002 BMW, which the victims drove to the zoo, as well as a partially filled bottle of vodka, according to court documents. The San Francisco Chronicle described the attitude of the Daliwals as hostile to the police following the attack, reporting that they had initially refused to identify themselves or Carla Sousa to the police, refused to give interviews to the police until two days after the attack, and would not speak publicly about the details of what happened to them. On February 16, 2008, the zoo reopened the exterior tiger exhibit, which was extensively renovated to meet the extension of the concrete moat wall up to the minimum height of 16 feet 4 inches from the bottom of the moat, installation of glass fencing on the top of the wall to extend the height to 19 feet, and installation of electrified hot wire. The zoo also installed portable loudspeakers that remind visitors to leave promptly at 5pm closing time and protect the animals. They also put up a sign that reads, 
Help the zoo make a safe environment. The magnificent magnificent animals, magnificent, the magnificent animals in the zoo are wild and possess all their natural instincts. You are a guest in their home. Please remember that they are sensitive and have feelings. Please do not tap on the glass, throw anything into the exhibits, make excessive noise, tease, or call out to them. On December 25th, 2008, a year after the event, a life-size concrete and tile sculpture of Tatiana by John Engel was revealed at the community garden in the, Green, in the Greenwich Steps on 274 Greenwich. Or Greenwich, I believe that is. Now, the four officers, Scott Biggs, Yukio Oshita, or Chris Oshita, I don't know, Kevin O'Leary and Daniel Cruz were honored for bravery during the incident. In a 2009 suit by the Dhaliwal brothers against the zoo, it was settled for $900,000. There was also a suit by Seuss's parents, which was settled for undisclosed terms. Seuss's father, Carlos, says that every Christmas day, they have a mass in honor of him at the church, and as long as God wants him to, he'll keep on doing it that way. Now, after the event, both Dhaliwal brothers got into trouble with the law. Paul Daliwal, his legal troubles began in April of 2007 before this event took place. He was arrested after leading the police in Santa Clara County on a chase that reached speeds of 140 miles per hour. He was sentenced to 30 days in jail and a three-year probation. Within three days of sentencing, he was also charged with marijuana possession and had also been charged in Alameda County with shoplifting. A judge imposed a 16-month term, the San Francisco Chronicle reported, making the sentence concurrent with another one for getting involved in a scuffle with a police officer. Daliwal could he kneel, oh, sorry, Daliwal faced more time for shoplifting, uh, but I couldn't find any information to confirm that he'd done that. His brother also went to trial uh, for fighting with the police. Now, Paul Daliwal actually died in 2012 at the age of 24. I was unable to find any cause of death for Paul Daliwal. So, uh, quite an interesting story there. That's that's um that's most of the information that I have for you there. Um, it's quite an interesting story. So. Here's my thoughts on what's actually happened, right? Um, I think, so these people have, let's just check, were they, I'm not sure if they were there before or after uh, closing time, um, shortly after closing time. So the three men, potentially four, if there's a witness that can be believed, um, they've stayed in the park past closing time. Um, I had a look at some photos of the uh, of the enclosure and the moat. Uh, so... The moat is very wide, um, but the wall is actually not that tall. I, I can see a tiger uh, being able to jump almost the height of that. And I can also see that there's a, like a little grassy area above the enclosure um, where I believe potentially the three men or, or one of the three men had climbed over. Um, now, if one of them were dangling an arm or legs over the side trying to get the tiger to jump and I'm trying to imagine myself in their situation kind of being a bit of a, a dickhead to the tiger um, I I can see a world where they're enticing the tiger to try and jump at them in the in the assumption that it's not going to be able to make it and it's going to fall back into the moat um, because that would be very funny I guess to, to them so if I'm enticing a tiger maybe I'm hanging my hands over the side maybe I'm hanging my legs over if the tiger manages to jump and grab onto you, uh, it can it could have used your body to to climb up the rest of that wall and uh, and escape that way. Uh, so that's kind of my thought. And, uh, another thought that I had, which was really um, 
I found this really interesting was how much, and I don't know if this is an American thing, um, and I don't know if it's because of the the time frame that this happened in the, in the late two thousands, but all of the um, like all of the media surrounding this story, th- there was so much that focused on the fact that they had, well, that they were drunk over the limit, and um, and that they had marijuana in the systems. The the media really really seem to make a big deal on the um the marijuana stuff like the number when i was researching this the number of articles that i saw that were like uh the like police or coroner confirms marijuana was involved and it's like does that matter like it really i don't think it should matter it's irrelevant to the case even if they were drunk on heroin it wouldn't really matter um what matters is that a tiger escaped its enclosure at the zoo. A tiger, which, by the way, I, I don't want to forget, had already had a, an incident um, before this, you know, when she attacked that that trainer. So uh, it's it's hard. I don't want to place n- no blame on the victims. Uh, I don't think that that would be a right or fair thing to do is to just say, oh, no, they, they didn't do anything wrong. Um, but, but at the same time, it's also not fair to say that the zoo is, is you know, without, without fault here. Um, the, the zoo, I mean, the zoo really, we, the 2006 attack, right, on, on, the, on the zoo trainer, there was an investigation and it found that they had provided inadequate safety precautions and training. And they were actually, and they were fined 18 grand, I think. Um, and also, you know, she sued in the zoo, the zoo as well. So the zoo clearly um, was at fault there after, after, um, you know the the what the investigation the investigation found that like yeah there was there was not enough safety precautions i imagine um there was you know say what safety precautions could you have other people watching um better better procedures for feeding the animals i guess would be one as well um so you know they they've learned their lesson there it was closed in like you know this is december of 2006 right and it was reopened in 2007, in September, so less than a year later. So I guess theoretically, um, the tiger cage... Oh, look, it was the tiger cage that was remodeled and reopened, not the enclosure itself. I'm assuming those are two separate things. Tiger cage is probably where the tigers go when they are being fed, uh, and the the enclosure is is kind of the... um, the enrichment area, the, the running around area of the zoo that the tiger gets to explore. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, showing that the tiger cage was not up to safety standards and then finding out later on that the wall that they had built um, was not up to safety standards as well. My my guess, and again, this is all speculative, San Francisco Zoo is probably an older zoo um, and that enclosure was probably built for an animal before those sort of safety guidelines had been had, had come out. And the zoo, my guess is that they hadn't bothered to either check what the new guidelines were or they hadn't bothered to to fix that wall up, um, which is, yeah, which is crazy. I also find it really interesting that, um, you know, the, the attack happened in 2007 uh, on December 25th, right? Nearly a year before the, uh, sorry, after the first attack. Um, the zoo then reopened, I think on the, th- was it the 3rd of January? That's that is a week. That is not much time at all. That is crazy that they would reopen so quickly after uh, a person was attacked and killed, and two others were badly injured uh, when an animal escaped from their enclosure. I would imagine that you would have to do like safety checks, not just on that enclosure of the tiger, but like every other animal in the zoo. If that one can escape, why can't the others? That's that was kind of my question there. Um, but look, okay. Let's let's talk about the victim. And again, I don't want to like talk uh, ill of the dead. Um, 
Well, I can't. Okay, Sousa seems to be okay. Uh, the the uh, the witness, um, Mrs. Miller, I believe her name was. She she never uh, claimed that she saw Sousa participating in the um, in the in the chiding of the um, of the of the of the of the tiger. Um, but the people that he were, was with, they definitely did. From all intents, from from what it sounds like, um, the Daliwal brothers uh, seem to be real trouble. Uh, especially, you know, hearing about the uh, what the police chase that he the Hydesby chase that he took them on, and um, yeah, how how aggressive they were and unwilling they were, you know, to to cooperate with the authorities. If I went to the zoo with my friends, by the way, and a tiger ate one of my friends, I would be so goddamn helpful. I would be like, yeah, this happened, this happened. I wouldn't decline interviews. I find that, like, if you're declining an interview, um, it's probably because you just have a bad relationship with the police, um, which is, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've ever done anything wrong. But uh, j- just from what I've heard about these people, these guys, it doesn't sound like they were the, the, the nicest dudes ever. Um, and, yeah, of course, uh, Paul. Paul Dalwell died, like, very young, at age 24 in 2012. I really wanted to find out what he died of, but I couldn't I couldn't find it out. Um, it was, yeah, it's, it's a shame I couldn't find out more about that, yeah. So that, guys, in a nutshell, that is the San Francisco Tiger Attacks. Um, a really interesting story. Absolutely wild story, honestly. So crazy. The um the fact that the the paramedics couldn't get in for ages because they were put in danger. It's so scary. Imagine being like just with a tiger in an enclosed area, and like the paramedics and the police are outside, but they can't come in because there's a fucking tiger there. And you're like, yeah, I know, guys, I know there's a tiger. That's kind of my whole problem right now. Uh, but you can't blame him. I mean, what are they like? the paramedics what union service i don't know how it works overseas but like <laughs> they, they can't just be expected to send their people into a fucking tiger cage i don't know anyway pretty pretty crazy story those guys that got attacked though were not um they were not angels i guess is the way to put it i mean they shouldn't have stayed in the thing it seems really like plausible to me that they were harassing the tiger and throwing stuff and being annoying so and i don't think it could have gotten out unless one of them was dangling their legs over the side that's also something that i believe was um looked into yeah unfortunate story unfortunate that it happened but um yeah very sad all right let's move on now to another one of the best episodes of the year probably the the hardest i've laughed on this show ever we're going to talk about attack of the cephalopods this was episode 16 61 um only a couple episodes after this san francisco tiger attack episode um this was when people ask me what's your favorite episode of the show that you've recorded i don't have a favorite but this has got to be the one of the funniest ones and i'm not saying like i'm funny i'm saying i don't remember laughing as hard as i've ever laughed when reading through (laughs) octopus wrestling (laughs) when discovering live on air what octopus wrestling was and uh (laughs) It's just making me laugh now. It's crazy. Uh, we'll, we'll get back into it, you guys. You'll hear. You'll hear what it is. But um, definitely had an impact. Um, I remember a few weeks ago I had an email or a Facebook message or something from a, a listener who has, was listening through this episode and loved loved the references to o- octopus wrestling and suggested that I look into noodling, which I did. Um, noodling, of course, is the um, <laughs> I don't know if you remember this. It's the practice of catching catfish in America. Um, by like using your body parts so essentially sticking your hand or foot down like a catfish hole in the river and letting them suck on your <laughs> and bringing them out 
pretty disgusting thing to do, if I'm being completely honest. Um, <laughs> I also want to know who the first person was that figured it out. Was like, yeah, we're going to eat a catfish tonight. How are you going to catch it? We don't really bait. Oh, I think I might just shove my fucking foot in its mouth. <laughs> Let it suck me off for a little. And then we'll eat it. You'll eat the animal that was just sucking my foot off. Anyway. <laughs> Attack of the Cephalopods, a really great episode, all about uh, dangerous cephalopods, which are octopuses, squids, uh, cuttlefish, and a few other uh, disgusting little creatures as well. So let's, um, yeah, let's put our nostalgia caps on and listen to episode 61, Attack of the Cephalopods. So, cephalopods, including octopuses, squids, and cuttlefish, can all be potentially dangerous to humans in certain situations. Now, while most of these species are generally not aggressive towards humans, they do possess some characteristics that can pose risk to human life. For example, some species uh, have dangerous bites. Um, they have, have bird-like beaks in their mouths that can pierce skin and cause injury. Additionally, some species can release venom, which can cause discomfort or even kill uh, human beings. Of course, we talked about the blue ring octopus last week. Cephalopods also have a defensive tactic called ink sacs, which, uh, which when triggered, they release a cloud of ink into the water. This can obscure, uh, sorry, this obscures their escape route, but can also create a dangerous situation, potentially reducing visibility for divers or confusion for nearby predators such as sharks. These creatures are also masters of camouflage, able to rapidly change color and texture to blend into their surroundings. And while this behavior is mainly used for defensive purposes to evade predators, it can inadvertently lead to encounters with unsuspecting humans who may have inadvertently provoked them. Now, furthermore, some cephalopods, like squids, have jet propulsion abilities, which is a very cool sentence to read out loud. By expelling water from their bodies, they can move rapidly through bodies of water. Now, while this is usually used for escape from predators, it can create a forceful water movement that can be hazardous to swimmers or divers who are in close proximity. And finally, of course, the cephalopods' most uh, distinctive feature, their tentacles. Uh, squids and octopuses have powerful and flexible tentacles adorned with suction cups that while they may attempt to grab onto objects they perceive as food or potential threats, now, while such behavior is uncommon with humans, accidental encounters or deliberate attempts to handle them can lead to unintended consequences. Cephalopod attacks on humans have been reported since ancient times. A significant portion of these attacks are questionable or unverified tabloid stories. Cephalopods are members of the class Cephalopoda, which includes all squids, octopuses, cuttlefish, and nautiluses. Some members of these groups are capable of causing injury and death to humans, and we are going to go through uh, the members of this species or this member of this family, uh, which can cause the most uh, dangerous situations to humans. Starting, of course, with the most common, the common octopus. The common octopus is the octopus you think of when I say octopus, right? I close your eyes. Even if you're driving, you know the you know the drill. Octopus. What you just had pop into your head, that's what this thing looks like. It's considered to be the most intelligent of all invertebrates. The common octopus is found in tropical and temperate waters of the world's oceans. They can grow to about 4.3 feet in length, and they weigh up to 22 pounds, although averages are much smaller. They prey on crabs, crayfish, mollusks, and will sometimes use their ink to disorient their victims before attacking. So I have here a list of uh, 
people who have claimed to have been attacked by common octopuses or who have reported attacks from common octopuses. The first one is from a person named Alfred Brehm. I believe German, maybe? Alfred Brehm. This guy was making his moves um, in the 1800s. Um, so Alfred Brehm, he was one of the most significant naturalists of the 19th century. Naturalists, I believe, means the study of nature, not walking around naked, just for anyone who's confused by that. Um, in a section on the giant squid in his famous book, The Life of Animals, he mentions... <clears throat> I don't know what nationality is, so we're just going to make him British. Or should we make him German? Let's let's go German. Uh, in Yes, in Life of Animals, he mentions, Most of his data of these giant octopuses can be found in Montfort's books, The Natural History of Mollusks. There is talk of a sea monster grabbing the master of a ship down off the coast of Angola with his arms and almost pulling the ship down into the abyss. On the occasion of which the lucky crew member painted the, danger, the great danger in a vowel in the chapel of St. Thomas in Malo, he further talks about another creature in the wake of Montfort, Captain Dens. It pulled some sailors off the ship's rack with his arms near St. Ilola. The end of one arm, which was stuck in the rigging of the ship, which had been cut off, proved to be 25 feet long and had several rows of suction discs on it. Um... I distracted myself with my amazing German accent, but essentially what he's saying is a bunch of people were kind of pulled off the ship uh, by potentially a giant octopus. Of, of course, this is from the 1800s, so it's very hard to verify this one. Um, but closer to, you know, uh, recent times, still in the 1800s, this guy was from, like, he was born in 1869 and he died in 1932, so m more recent. Um, an American traveler named Frederick O'Brien, he reports that during his research in the Marquis Islands that a relative of one of the locals was killed by a large octopus living in the coastal countryside. Another story uh, took place on an undetermined date, but we know that it was some point in the early 20th century. A diver was attacked by a large octopus in the military port of Toulon. The diver almost drowned and lost consciousness. Luckily, the diver's companions were able to pull him out of the water. Only then could they remove the animal. The octopus weighed about 60 kilograms and had eight legs. Which is obvious. <laughs> I'm that, sorry. Had legs eight meters long. That's, Jesus Christ, that's huge. Holy moly, that is a big octopusy. Um, according, this is a new story, according to Pernetti in uh, the book Voyage Ulier Maloni. <laughs> my French is as good as my German. Um, off the coast of Angola, a huge eight-armed octopus. We've mentioned that eight arms is kind of standard. We don't have to keep saying that. A huge eight-armed octopus climbed aboard. It was so severe that the ship capsized halfway. The rest of the story is unknown. Um, now, Victor Hugo, I, I thought he might come up in this. Victor Hugo, of course, the guy who wrote 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, in French writer Victor Hugo's novel, Toilers of the Sea, an imaginary fight between the novel's main hero and an octopus takes place. Hugo also comments on the allegations of similar events. Uh, an engraving in Sonetti's edition of Buffoon represents a cephalotopper crushing a frigate. <laughs> I just have to go, I can't do the accent. Dennis Monfort, who we mentioned in a previous uh, story, in fact, considers the pulp, or the octopod, of high latitude strong enough to destroy a ship. 
Bori St. Vincent doubts this, but he shows that in our regions, they will attack men. Near Brechthu in Sark, they show a cave where a devil fish a few years since seized and drowned a lobster fisher. <laughs> I think the devilfish is their word for octopus. Peron and Lamarck are in error in their belief that their pulp, having no fins, cannot swim. He who writes these lines has seen with his own eyes at Sark in the cavern called Botos a poivre swimming and pursuing a bather. When captured and killed, this specimen was found to be four English feet broad, and it was possible to count 400 suckers. Uh, 400 suckers, by the way, that's a Trump rally. Oh, political, political. Sorry, I don't mean to get political. I love you all. The monster thrust them out convulsively in the agony of his death. Other sources confirm one of these stories. Um, I realize that this is very poorly written, but it's very old and he was French, so that's probably why. Now, while octopuses generally avoid human uh, humans, attacks have occasionally been verified. For example, a 240 centimeter, which is about eight foot, Pacific octopus said to be nearly camouflage, approached a diver and attempted to wrap itself around the diver and his camera. Another diver recorded the encounter on video. Uh, the divers speculated that the octopus may have thought its reflection in the camera lens was a smaller octopus, which may have motivated it to attack. Now, there was apparently a supposed octopus attack on a Staten Island ferry in New York City, which allegedly led to the loss of the ferry and commemorated is commemorated by a bronze sculpture installed in 2016. Uh, this never actually occurred. It was all a prank, um, nor was there ever such a ferry disaster. The artist responsible for the sculpture admitted that it was a multimedia art project and social experiment, not maliciously uh, aimed uh, to talk about how gullible people can be. Now, we've talked about a few stories. At this point of the episode, we need to stop and we need to have a serious talk about octopus wrestling. Have you ever heard of octopus wrestling before? No, you haven't, because I haven't heard of it, and I host a podcast all about this shit. I make it my business to know this weird stuff. Okay, so... In researching all this uh, lovely, <laughs> lovely stuff about my favorite cephalopod, the octopus, um, I learned that there is apparently uh, a sport that was quite popular in the 1960s called octopus wrestling. So I've got some information for you. Uh, essentially, what octopus wrestling was, was divers would willingly grapple with octopuses um, and <laughs> in a sport called octopus wrestling. It was a then popular sport in coastal areas of the United States. So it just goes to show that, uh, you know, it's been 60 years since it's happened. The U.S. has not recently become crazy. They were doing weird shit the whole time. Octopus wrestling involves a diver grappling with a large octopus in shallow water and dragging it to the surface. So although it's called wrestling, it's not actually wrestling per se. Um, as most octopuses, as we have talked about, they're rather skittish and they would rather fuck off rather than engaging with a weird... <laughs> American with a dad bod wading into your house. Um, they're not aggressive at all unless they are provoked, which, uh, you know, usually provocation ends with an octopus fucking off. Um, but sometimes they're not able to fuck off fast enough and they end up being wrestled by some guy. The contestants were usually only searching in holes uh, in along rocks and in the ocean to grab the head of an octopus. Once a diver caught an octopus, he continued to pull up until the animal gave up. 
Isn't that fucking weird? An early article on octopus wrestling appeared in a 1949 issue of Mechanics Illustrated, which is a weird... I mean, I don't know if Mechanics is spelled Mechanics with an X at the end, so maybe it's a different thing, but it's a weird... If it's about mechanics, like cars, that's odd. I don't know why. I don't understand the relevance of wrestling an octopus out of its home <laughs> to someone who's just like trying to buy a new muffler, but whatever. Um, <laughs> a report from the Toledo Blade. The Toledo Blade. By the way, the Toledo Blade. What a fucking cool name for for an, uh, a newspaper or, or a magazine. The, they old <laughs> old publications had the best names. I believe there was like one called the Louisiana Battle Axe or something like that. Just They're just cool. The Toledo Blade reports um, that in 1957, 200 people gathered to watch an octopus wrestling event in Puget Sound near Tacoma, Washington. A team from Port Merm... They had teams. They had teams in this sport. Wow. Well, what did you do on the weekend? Oh, me and my team went octopus wrestling. We won, by the way, because we caught an 80-pound octopus. <laughs> The team from Portland in Oregon, yeah, well, they won the contest by catching an 80-pound octopus. <laughs> octopus wrestling reached the height of its popularity on the West Coast. Yeah, it does feel like a West Coast thing, doesn't it? On the West Coast of the United States during the 1960s. Yeah, I imagine <laughs> Californians maybe just all blazed out of their fucking mind during the 60s, going down to the beach and <laughs> yanking an octopus out of a rock pool. <laughs> it's such a funny visual, sorry. <laughs> I hope that you're getting the same visual image in your brain as I am right now. I'm just imagining this like <laughs> this buff dude in a speedo <laughs> and his budgie smugglers walking, <laughs> jumping into a knee high rock pool and <laughs> pulling a poor octopus out. <laughs> the octopus's family. <laughs> The, the octopus's family is like, wait, no, come back. Oh, sorry. I don't think I've laughed this hard on one of these episodes for a very long time. Oh. Gary, why? Gary, why didn't you take the garbage out? Well, I was going to Sharon, but but some blonde-haired beach bimbo yanked me out of the hole. <laughs> oh, fucking wild. At that time, the... Oh, God damn it. Get this. Okay. So octopus wrestling reached the height of its popularity on the west coast of the United States during the 1960s. At that time, the annual World Octopus Wrestling Championships... <laughs> This can't be real. This is so fucking weird. The annual World Octopus Wrestling Championships were held in Puget Sound, Washington. Yeah, what a great world championship event. Where is it? Is it in New York or is it in like Chicago or Los Angeles? No, it's in Puget Sound, Washington. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> the event was televised. And attract up to 5,000 spectators. What the fuck? That's crazy. Wow. Trophies were awarded to the individual divers and teams who caught the largest animals. Oh, God damn it. This next... Afterwards, the octopuses were either eaten... Jesus, given to the local aquarium 
or return to the sea. Jesus. Sharon, it could have been worse. I'm sorry to take the bins out, but I could have been eaten. I could have been a family of four's Thanksgiving dinner. Oh. <laughs> now I'm just imagining a Thanksgiving dinner where it's just like a big fucking octopus in the middle of the table. Anyway, octopus is delicious, by the way, if you haven't tried it. In April 1963, 111 divers took part in the World Octopus Wrestling Championships. A total of 25 giant Pacific octopuses were captured that day, ranging in weight from 4 to 57 pounds, which in a normal person is 1.8 to 25.9 kilograms. That's heavy. Um, <laughs> due to a deal... What the fucking hell? Oh, my God. Due to a deal to televise the championships and as not sufficient octopuses could be found at the beach... The, the organizers placed several octopuses, which the, <laughs> this is the best thing ever. So <laughs> they didn't. The beach didn't have enough octopuses, so they like they placed octopuses there, like stocking a pond full of cod. <laughs> they couldn't. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> they placed several octopuses which they had caught in advance of the contest along the beach to promise action and to ensure a successful contest. <laughs> yeah, I guess that I guess that ensures it. God damn, this is so fucking funny. H. Allen Smith wrote an article for True Magazine in 1964, collected in Low Man Rides Again, 1973, about a man named O'Rourke, whom he dubs the father of octopus wrestling. Jesus Christ, imagine if that was your dad. According to information Smith collected from Edouard Jones and other sources, O'Rourke and a partner developed a business in the late 1940s of fishing for octopuses, with O'Rourke serving as <laughs> with O'Rourke serving as live bait and his partner hauling him out of the water after an octopus was sufficiently wrapped around him. <laughs> Oh, God, imagine going into a board meeting or a pitch meeting and this guy's like, I have a plan. We have a business opportunity for you to invest in. Okay, uh, sounds great, Mr. O'Rourke. Tell us, what are you thinking? Is it, uh, Are you investing in the stock market? Do you have a new invention? No, I have a way to fish for octopuses. Okay, cool. feel like we had that already, but what's your plan, Mr. O'Rourke? Right, well, what happens is I I just jump into the ocean until an octopus sufficiently wraps around me, and then my, f my fucking buddy, Cleet, he yanks me out of the water, and we dine an octopus for weeks. Jesus. Uh now, apparently, um, all of this, apparently O'Rourke was becoming perhaps the world's greatest authority on the thought processes and the personality of the octopus. He knew how to outmaneuver them, outflank them, and to outthink them. He knew well, very years, he knew full well many years ago what today's octopus wrestlers are beginning to learn, that it is impossible for a man with two arms to apply a full Nelson on an octopus. This was published, someone wrote this and was paid for it. It is impossible for a man with two arms to apply a full Nelson on an octopus. He knew full well the futility. Oh, come on. This can't be real. He knew, he knew full well the futility of trying for a crotch hold on an opponent with eight crotches. 
I don't know if octopuses technically have eight crotches. I don't know how that works. I guess maybe. Uh, and... <laughs> A 1965 issue of Time magazine documented the growing popularity of octopus wrestling as follows. Merely to minnow in about water is no longer enough, as such sports as octopus wrestling are coming increasingly into vogue, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, where the critters grow up to 90 pounds and can be exceedingly tough customers. Although there are several accepted techniques for octopus wrestling, the really sporty way requires that the human diver go without artificial breathing apparatus. That's right, if you go octopus wrestling with a scuba tank, you're a fucking pussy. <laughs> wild that's all the information i can find about octopus wrestling oh god i'm having a great time <laughs> okay so <laughs> god okay sorry okay pull it together chapman come on it's all right let's uh let's talk a little bit more about a different uh type of cephalopod we're talking about the giant or the colossal squid now in my mind the this was where the real danger would come from so when we think about colossal squid or giant squid, the most common question that arises about giant squids is whether or not these huge animals actually do attack humans or possess a threat to ships. Now, we must answer this question in the affirmative. Yes, they do pose a threat. However, uh, certainly not in the case of modern cruise ships. There's no doubt, uh, however, that a smaller ship or boat, particularly a wooden boat used in olden times, can be occasionally attacked by such a giant animal. The fact that there are so there are a few examples of this uh, is obviously due to the fact that the giants do not come close to the surface. That's right, giant squids are... Well, I can't remember the, the, the zone of the ocean they live in, but they live deep down, so it's very rare for them to come up. Um, now, this is also good fortune for humans because if it were not, it would certainly have posed a danger to boaters. I would also posit a little what if for you, that if giant squids and colossal squids uh, lived in the upper levels of the ocean, like that was their habitat, um, I would posit that uh, human history would be very different. I think that uh, nautical travel and exploration would have been far more dangerous if you had these goddamn fucking krakens <laughs> at any point could just reach up and pull your uh, your whole fucking family under the water and kill you. Uh, either that or we would have hunted them to extinction because we need to go to America. We need spices. We need land. We need slaves. That is uh, me speaking as a European colonizer. <laughs> Reliable witnesses report that the giant squid has attacked ships in recent times, even large ships. The arch... 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 Udithis, that's a shit name, uh, purportedly swam around a ship. Oh, that's just a name for a giant squid. Okay, the giant squid reportedly swam around the ship, traveling at speeds of up to 40 kilometers per hour. And by the way, this is a fucking phenomenal speed for an aquatic animal. Um, we have no idea how fast a um, giant squid can get. Um, and it launched its attack. We can assume that the hull of the ship could have been viewed as the body of the Patagonian toothfish as the places they try to bite into were where the brains were located. Uh, 
how true this is assumption is uh, sorry, will be revealed one day. Uh, so we shouldn't always think of a giant squid uh, stories as tales, but we also have to take into account that they mostly uh, they mostly thoroughly coloured. Dr. Wolfgang Krom wrote that in 1977. I kind of embellished a little bit. Basically, what he's saying is that the idea that um, giant squids attacking ships it's not fantasy. It's not entirely fantasy, but it's also not. Uh, as dramatic as we might say. So the French ship Ville d'Alle Paris. <laughs> what was that? Ville de Paris. Yeah, nailed it. This ship participated in the American War for Independence. She sailed in the company of nine other ships when she was attacked by a huge giant squid or multiple giant squids and dragged down into the deep. However, other sources claim the ship sank in a storm in 1782. Both of those are very different stories. It would be nice if we could have had some confirmation on that. Uh, another story in, uh, regarding a giant squid or colossal squid. Based on other sources, a Hungarian traveler, Dr. Endrik Jekyll, tells several of the above stories. On the 26th of October, 1873, three men were fishing in the Belle Isle in Newfoundland and Labrador. They were attacked by a huge giant squid, but one of the fishermen cut off one of the squid's arms. Based on this arm, the length of the animal was subsequently estimated to be at 14 metres long. For the Americans, that is 46 feet on the shore. Another story. Sailors cleaning a ship near St. Leona Island and Cape uh, Nigra? That's a scary word to say. N-I-G-R-A. Nigra, I'm going to say that, uh, were attacked by a giant squid. Two were pulled into the deep and a third later died from injuries sustained during the attack. One of the squid's arms severed in the attack was 7.5 meters in length. The full arm was estimated to be about 10 meters long. Based on this, the entire animal would have been much larger. And then in 1873, uh, a fishing boat in Conception Bay, Newfoundland, was attacked by a giant squid. Numerous letters about the incident stated a severed tentacle was recovered. I also, for our Canadian listeners, I just want you to appreciate um, how I pronounce Newfoundland. Um, it's not Newfoundland. I've seen Come From Away, the fantastic Broadway musical. Have you seen Come From Away, guys? My goodness, it came to Newcastle recently. It was fucking spectacular. I loved it. In, sorry, I got a little carried away there. Um, in 1874, a report appeared in an Indian newspaper stating that on, 10, on the 10th of May of the current year, a ship called the Stra uh, Strathuan was leaving Colombo for Madras through the Bay of Bengal. In the distance, a small sailboat appeared to which a huge crowd swam with a whipping movement and then climbed onto it. It was a giant squid or giant octopus. The small ship soon capsized and then sank. The crew of the small boat got into the water, but they were picked up by the crew of the Strathamwyn. Its captain, James Floyd, uh, reported that the small ship called the Pearl, weighing 140 tons, they claimed themselves shot the, sorry, they claimed that they themselves shot the squid floating in silence, which made him furious and climbing onto the ship. Two sailors died in the squid attack, and a third disappeared, perhaps drowned. Five people escaped the Pearl. The squid body was said to be at least as thick as the small ship and its arms thick as wood. In the 1930s, Norwegian tanker Brunswick reported having been attacked by a giant squid in the South Pacific between Hawaii and Samoa. The animal tried unsuccessfully to grip the ship with its tentacles before being killed by the propellers. Ooh, that's some juicy calamari. Uh, this story was actually validated 
by comment, uh, commandeer on Groizing. Fuck you, Norway. Just say commander of the Royal Norwegian Navy, uh, stating that the ship had not one but three encounters with giant squids between the nineteen uh, between nineteen thirty and nineteen thirty three. Another story, a giant squid allegedly attacked a raft with survivors from the Britannia in 1941, which had sunk in the South Atlantic. One of the men was dragged away by the squid and another, Lieutenant Raymond Edmund Griminary Cox, managed to narrowly escape the same fate, though suffering tentacle sucker wounds. Uh, I think that's a lie. I think he just got a hickey from a, uh, from a woman at port and that was his excuse. Sorry, love, that's not what you think. I'm not cheating on you. With a sex worker at the dock, it was a giant squid sucker. <laughs> That's probably a good one to try, I think. <laughs> Guys, if you're going to get caught, just do it. Why, why am I giving you advice? Fuck you. You're bad people. Anyway, the chronicle um, of the survivors was first told in 1941 by the London Illustrated News, which stated that according to the account given by them by Cox, a survivor first had his legs bitten off by a shark and then was devoured by a giant manta ray. I don't think that's true. I don't think manta rays eat people. But in 1956, Cox himself contacted writer Frank W. Lane to tell his story. They required marine naturalist John Cloudsley Thompson to examine Cox's scars at Burbeck College, and the former further validated the story, assuring that the marks between uh, one and one quarter inches in size belonged to a 23-foot long squid. The story has been called the only substantiated report of a giant squid killing humans. However, other authors have called it into question, considering it an urban legend. To me, that's enough evidence to say that this did, that did happen. Anyway, um, another story. In 1978, we're getting very recent now. In 1978, the USS Stein was apparently attacked by a giant squid. The ship's no-foul rubber coating was damaged with multiple cuts containing evidence of claws found in the squid's tentacles. I didn't know that. Apparently, the giant squid tentacles have little, like, claws in them, which, you know, I thought they were just, like, suckers, like you would find on, like, a little sticky toy, like a little thing you want to stick to the wall in the shower. Um, the next story occurred in 1989. Uh, a Philippine fisherman rescued 12 survivors clinging to an overturned boat. They alleged that a giant octopus or giant squid turned the boat upside down, but it did not attack them afterwards. Yet the incident has one fatal outcome. A 12-year-old boy was drowned. In 2003, the crew of a yacht competing to win the Round the World Jules Verne Trophy reported being attacked by a giant squid several hours after departing from Brittany in France. The squid purportedly latched onto the ship and blocked the rudder with its two tentacles. Olivia de Curson, captain of the yacht, stopped the boat, causing the squid to lose interest. We did not have anything to scare off this beast, so I don't know what we would have done if it didn't let go, Kirsten said, being fucking French. Um, <laughs> like we have time to talk about one more cephalopod. I'm going to talk about the Humboldt squid. Never heard of the Humboldt squid before I researched this episode. But it's a cool little animal, and I'm a big, I'm a big fan of it. The Humboldt squid is to, considered to be the largest of the Omastrophid squid family. The Humboldt squid can grow up to 8 feet and 2 inches long, which is 2.5 meters for our normal people, and it can weigh up to 100 pounds, which is 50 kilograms for our normal people. Typically, the adults reach a mantle, which is the body length, of 4 feet 11 inches, 1.5 meters. 
Humboldt squids are notorious for their aggression, hence their inclusion on the list and in this episode. In Mexico, I love this, in Mexico they are known as Diablo Rojo, Spanish for the Red Devil. Local fishermen uh, tales claim that people who fell into the waters were devoured within minutes by packs of squid. Wildlife filmmaker Scott Castle made the documentary Humboldt, the, the man-eating squid for the Dangerous Waters series on the Discovery Channel. I don't have the Discovery Channel, uh, but if I get it, I will, I will watch that. Now, there is some disagreement on the veracity of the Humboldt squid's aggression. Some scientists claim the only reports of aggression towards humans have occurred when reflective diving gear or flashing lights have been present, acting as provocation. My, fla uh, you know, retort to, to that claim is, yeah, that still counts. It doesn't really matter what the circumstances are unless it's like the animal was attacked first by the human. It doesn't really matter for us, like, why it was attacked, because you were wearing a shiny, you know, high-vis vest or you had a flashlight. It doesn't matter. It does mean that the animal um, can act aggressive. Um, and, of course, like, obviously, shining torches on animals can be seen as provocation. It's not intentional provocation. You know what I mean? There's a difference. Um, Roger... Uzen, a veteran scuba diver and amateur underwater videographer, swam with a swarm of Humboldt squids for approximately 20 minutes, 20 minutes, later saying they seemed more curious than aggressive. While not feeding or being hunted, Humboldt squid exhibit, exhibit curious and intelligent behavior. Uh, Jeremy Wade deals with the Humboldt squid in his documentary River Monsters. We've used the River Monsters as a, uh, as a source before. If you think back to one of our earlier episodes, I believe that was a... Um, a ferry disaster in the Amazon uh, where a bunch of people died and were eaten by unknown animals. Jeremy Way did an episode on that and he was one of our main sources. Uh, so yes, he's done a, an episode on the Humboldt squid. Uh, in this episode, a Californian a fisherman claims to have been attacked at a fish table one night as he tried to swim from one boat to another. In the same film, Peruvian fisherman considers this animal to be life-threatening. If one gets between them, they will be dragged down into the deep. In another film by naturalist Steve Blackshaw, the fishermen report, among other things, that a fisherman was caught in the abyss by a squid. Another fisherman was bitten by the squid on his skull, breaking it into pieces. Yikes. Yeah, I, I like... I, the veracity of the claims that any of these animals will attack and kill you is... It's in doubt. It's not like a tiger when we know they fucking kill people. Um, it, but it's also not like a cryptid where we don't know it exists. It's kind of in this nebulous, weird middle area. But I wouldn't want to swim with them <laughs> regardless. I just think the risk is too high. Now, of course, there are other cephalopods that can cause injury to people. We talked about one last week. That's why we're not going into great detail today. But uh, the blue-ringed octopus is obviously, if you're an Australian, you know all about the blue-ringed octopus. But if you don't, blue-ringed octopus, it's one of the smallest um, octopus species. They like to live in rock pools around the coast of Australia. I believe around the coast of almost all of Australia although I think when, once you get too south, it gets too cold for them. Um, they live in rock pools, and their biggest danger is that they're beautiful. Um, they have these beautiful, glowing, almost blue rings, kind of like neon, all over their body. Um, and children sometimes see them in the rock pools and pick them up, uh, and they, they are very venomous. They're one of... They're one of, if not the most venomous animals in the world. Um, and yeah, they, they can sting and they can kill a kid. Uh, they can kill a kid in minutes. They can kill an adult in maybe 10 or 15 minutes, I think, as well. So uh, I saw it, I saw one the other day, actually. I was uh, going, I was on a hike with my friend. We were going to a place called Shark Hole. I thought he was saying charcoal, like the black mineral rock. But no, Shark Hole, as in the anus of a shark. Uh, no, it was like a big 
big cove where sharks live. Um, and we were, there's like big rock pools. We walked past, we saw, we saw some octopuses and I saw a little, um, uh, blue ring octopus their their rings don't glow the reason they glow the rings it's kind of like a defense mechanism it's it's basically saying to predators off your fuck i'm not good for you i will poison you and sting you and you will not like it so uh, that's essentially what that's for basically yeah but we saw it um and they they, they cause uh, injury and death a lot another animal that i thought for a second would be on this list was jellyfish but jellyfish obviously they're not cephalopods i don't know why in my brain i had them because they've got long tentacles i guess and we'll talk about jellyfish another time because there are so many stories of those particularly like the uh how do you pronounce it the orange way or whatever um and the, the box jellyfish they're fucking wild animals i don't want anything to do with them um worse than cephalopods but as we've learned cephalopods pretty bad so we've talked about the common octopus and then giant squids and colossal squids and the humble squid and of course the the blue ringed octopus as well all animals that if i were to give any advice would be to just say yeah just just back off a little bit they're a little a little spooky um that is it for our uh you know section on attack of the cephalopods i did tell you that this would be a two-parter episode and that's because next episode we're doing a killer episode such a good episode i mean like not to blow my own horn but that that was a good one and attack of the cephalopods was an episode i'd wanted to do for a year it was like episode 20 at one point on the chart um for those of you who don't know or maybe that's everyone i don't know if i've talked about this i do keep a list of the episodes and i I stay about 20 episodes ahead of what i want to cover and it changes frequently based on the news, based on what I feel like talking about, or if a new uh, story comes to my attention, that might go straight in. For example, like the um, the Monkey Man of New Delhi, which is like one of the most recent episodes that's come out, it's a Killer Cryptids episode, only just discovered that, but um, that was such an interesting story, I had to throw it you know, right, right away on the barbie, on the grill. Um, so this next episode, um, it's it's well it's one of our list episodes one of my favorite formats to do when we find a list uh usually on wikipedia of it's usually a fairly complete list a very comprehensive list of a list of fatal uh, attacks from a certain animal so in the past we've done um we've done the list of fatal bear attacks in north america i believe we call that bears and bloodshed i'm pretty good at coming up with snappy titles we did uh oh beware the dog which is all about fatal dog attacks in the usa that was like three or four parts of that because that was a long list um we've done sharks we did sharks in south africa um and the most recent um version of this format was we did a snake episode so we did a list of fatal snake bites in australia which we started off with and then the second episode the second part of that series was uh, a list of fatal snake bites in uh, in america sorry and one thing became really clear early on is that the di- the, is the difference of uh, the cause of the snake attack so in australia snake attacks they fall into kind of like two categories probably three the first category is uh people on bushwalks or on farms and they accidentally get bitten by a snake and the second group are snake handlers biologists um you know crocodile hunters entertainers holding the snakes and they get bitten as well in america it's different um the kind of number one and i really could not have expected this i really did not anticipate this would be the case the number one cause of people dying by snake bites um by a fairly significant margin on this list is in religious services in church it's pastors and priests 
and imams. I actually don't know if there's any imams, but like Catholic Christians, Christians holding snakes and getting bit constantly. There's one person on this list. We'll hear it in a, in a moment. He, he like let I think two people died in one person died in his congregation. His wife died, and then he died like 40 years later because he was also bitten by a snake. Um, it's insane, and I think you will watch. You will listen to my um, mind unravel as each person I get to every, the the latest entry I read out. How often it's a goddamn <laughs> preventable death by either a pastor or a priest in a church holding a snake against someone's face, or someone who had a snake in their house or apartment or flat or trailer or cabin that just shouldn't have had them there. Um, that happened quite a lot as well. So, uh, yeah, like here we go. It's a very slippery episode. Snakes and salvation. The list of fatal snake bites in America. So, unlike Australia, how Australia has one sort of common ancestor for all of our snake species, so all of our snake species are quite related and also very highly venomous, um, the United States has a bunch of different snake species, about 30 species of venomous snakes, um, and that actually includes a number of species of rattlesnakes, about 23 of those, three species of coral snakes, two species of cottonmouth snakes, and at least two species of copperhead snakes. At least one species of venomous snake is found in every single state in the U.S except for Hawaii, Maine, Rhode Island, and Alaska. The timber rattlesnakes did used to live in Rhode Island and a small area of southern Maine. However, they've been exterminated from both states. Now, it is estimated that about 7,000 to 8,000 people each year in America die by receiving venomous snake bites in the United States. There's about five of those people who die each year. Through, uh, sorry, though most of the fatal bites are attributed to rattlesnakes, the copperhead actually accounts for more snake bite incidents than any other venomous snake in North America. Rattlesnake bites, by comparison, are approximately four times as likely to result in death or via major side effects as a copperhead bite. Venomous snakes are distributed unevenly throughout the United States. The vast majority of snake bites do occur in warmer weather states. States like Florida and Texas have a wide variety and large population of venomous snakes. Bites from venomous snakes are extremely rare in the United States near the Canada-US border. Maine, for example, theoretically only has one species, which is the timber rattlesnake. It is rarely seen and only in the southern part of the state, and the species is likely exterminated in Maine, with the last sighting been in 1901. So this is a non-comprehensive list. There may be people who uh, died who are not on this list, but it is quite exhaustive. So we're going to go from the very beginning. I'm going to try and keep this all in one episode if possible. So we may move through quite quickly. Um, so I hope you're ready to sort of strap in and get ready for that. Um, as always, uh, the list does include links to sources. Uh, this often includes uh, really great news articles. So if we find a story that's particularly interesting, we will uh, focus in on that for a second. Uh, an example of that was last week with the Australian snake bite episode. There was a dude who, like, his wife and his handler had died, and then, like, he apparently ditched a bunch of his snakes on an island or something. That was really interesting. So we might do the same thing here. So we're going to go through as quickly as we can uh, and be ex as exhaustive as we can. So we're starting 
thing. Um, this list has a section for both the 18th and 19th century. Uh, so we're going to go through these. The first bite on the list actually occurred all the way back in 1790 on August 28th. It was a child around the age of five or six, we're not sure, and it was a timber rattlesnake, and that is going to come up a lot. This child was bitten by a rattlesnake and died the next day in Hardwick, Massachusetts. The next person died was also in Massachusetts, an unknown person who died in 1791, also by a timber rattlesnake. This was the, oh, sorry, this was the last fatal snake bite in the state of Massachusetts. Wow, so Massachusetts starts off the list strong, but does not reoccur apparently. That's interesting. Uh, moving on, a Richardson, who was an infant son of a W.M. and Ella. Uh, this death occurred in 19, sorry, sorry, 1796 in Richard Cemetery, uh, Richardson Cemetery in the town of Springport, New York. It was likely a Masugaya or a timber rattlesnake. Interesting. A person by the name of H.M. Pettigrew was 31 years old, died on August 15th, 1841 from a rattlesnake. Pettigrew died from a rattlesnake bite while clearing land in Fannin County, Texas. The next death was a woman named Maggie Lee. She died on October 24th, 1854 by a rattlesnake. She was the first child to die of a snake bite in Parker County in Texas. William A. Perrin was the next victim. He died in 1859. Perrin was killed by a timber rattlesnake in Stribling Springs in Augusta County, Virginia. 1973 was the next bite. Uh, Frederick Lewis Neiman, who was a man. Uh, Neiman died in Saline, Saline County in Texas from a rattlesnake bite. We do not know what kind of rattlesnake. Similarly for the next few, we don't know what kind of rattlesnake it was, but it was a rattlesnake. A George Sides, a six-year-old boy, died on the 30th of May in 1873. Sides died in Texas of a rattlesnake bite. James Aeneas Brennan, I think there's an yeah, Aeneas Brennan was two years old when he passed away from a rattlesnake bite. Brennan died from a rattlesnake bite received while lying on a blanket in Texas. He died in July of 1882. Rebecca O. Andrews, approximately 28 years old. She was a female and she died around 1890. She died from a rattlesnake bite again in Kansas. And the final person to die in this section of the list called the 18th and 19th century was Belinda Rourke. Sadly, she was six years old. She died from a rattlesnake bite on, uh, in June of 1891. Rourke died from a bite while playing near a pile of rocks near the family's ranch in Purgatory River Valley of Southern Colorado. The child survived for a whole day after the bite, but then she died. Very sad, very sad stuff. Okay, well, at least that's, that's that section done, the 18th and 19th century. We're moving on now to the 1900s. And um, the first, obviously, like, is similar to all the other lists we've done in the past. The closer we get to the modern day, the present day, the more information there is because uh, record keeping was better and journalism was better too. So there will be longer stories. So the first person to die, or at least the first person to be on the list from the 1900s, uh, was Edward, Con Edward Cornstock, who was 39 years old. He died in September, the 25th of September, 1900. Cornstock died as a result of a bite from a rattlesnake snake during a snake handling exhibition on Water Street in Chillicothe, Ohio. A newspaper article read, Edward Cornstock, manager of a snake show, was bitten by a rattlesnake at Chillicothe, O. 
Ohio, I think, last week and died in terrible agony. His hand and arm swelled to an enormous size. Every known antidote was tried without avail. He was changing the snakes and put his hand into a box when the rattler bit him. He had handled snakes for years. Wow. Just as to show, and this was a similar thing in the Australian list, snake handlers are the ones who are getting bitten a lot. So um, that might be a recurring theme that we see today as well. The next victim on our list was actually two whole years later, the 25th of exactly two years to the day, 25th of September, 1903, Frank uh, Benham, I think that's how you'd say that, was two years old when he died. Benham died from a rattlesnake bite in Adams County, Colorado, 17 miles north of Deer Trail. We don't know the name of the uh, next victim, it just says anonymous male, but we do know that he died in... uh, May of 1906, from an unknown kind of snake. A young man became seriously ill and died as a result of a snake bite while handling a snake during one of George Went Hensley's religious sermons in Barlow, in Barlow, uh, Florida. Shortly after, the town of Barlow passed a law that banned snake handling. Well, there you go, Florida. That's smart. That's smart. I have a joke about gun control, but I'm not going to do it. I know you Americans don't like when us Australians get lippy about your weapons. Uh, Okay, Mary Bull. I'm going to tell you the joke because it kind of is a little bit random. I just said that. I was going to say one snake bite and they ban the snakes, but you can shoot a bunch of people in a strip club and you're, uh, you know, it's, it is what it is. It's not good. Uh, it's not good. <laughs> anyway, speaking of not good, Mary Bull was a 12 year old girl and she died on July 9th of 1907 from a rattlesnake. Bull died from a rattlesnake bite in Shenandoah County, Virginia. The timber rattlesnake is the only species of rattlesnake in this region. There you go. Shenandoah. That's a beautiful name. The only reason I'm able to pronounce any of these names is because I hear them. You Americans are so lucky. All of your tiny little counties and towns, they've popped up in movies at least once that I've, I've heard. So I know how to pronounce them so if you're an indian person or like european person uh or a chinese person who like gets upset with me for mispronouncing your place names just understand it's because they're not in movies i only i learned from hearing shenandoah county virginia lovely okay that was actually a very short section for the 1900s let's move to the 1910s we have four victims on our list frank uh, stanky switz oh that can't be the name surely stanky wits Yep, Stankiewicz. I'm going to say Stankiewicz. It sounds like it's like a German. Oh, Lithuanian. It's Lithuanian. Frank Stankiewicz, 57 years old, died from a rattlesnake on the 9th of July, 1910. Stankiewicz, a Lithuanian immigrant, trapped a rattlesnake while fishing near Nanakote, Pennsylvania. When he t- attempted to pull off the rattle, oh God, he attempted to pull off the rattles, the snake escaped and bit him twice. Um, Stankiewicz, that's not what we do. You can't, that's, okay, he kind of, he kind of maybe deserved that one. He tried to, what, he tried to rip the tail off the snake, and he was surprised that the snake bit him. Um, yeah, I don't do that. Don't do that. I think that's the first thing in every first aid kit, survival guide. Uh, if you do have a rattlesnake, don't attempt to rip the rattle off the snake, dickhead. Um, the next victim, it's actually two uh, victims. Two of the Wilson children uh, died in North Dakota on June 1913 from a prairie rattlesnake. The children were bitten and died while their family was sleeping on the North Dakota prairie. 
That's very sad. Uh, also very sad is the next victim was only four years old. Helen Moomy died on September 23rd, 1915. Moomy died from a rattlesnake bite she received while playing with her friends near her house in Billings County, North Dakota. The prairie rattlesnake is the only venomous snake in North Dakota. Interesting. And finally, the last victim of the 1910s, a Gustav A. Link. Gustav A. Link, 51 years old, died on August 15th, 1917. Uh, Link was showing his pet timber rattlesnake to a group of University of Pittsburgh students in the taxidermy lab, lab of Carnegie Museum. When putting the snake back into its cage, Link was bitten on his right index finger. Link was admitted to Mercy Hospital and treated. Herptologist, which is a scientist who studies snakes, um, Raymond Dittmars, sent antivenom from New York by train in the custody of a Pullman porter. Antivenom was administered 12 hours after the bite, but Link died 15 hours after the bite. There you go. He's one of the ones that could have made it. That's a bite. I mean, a bite anywhere sucks, but I think a bite on the finger or maybe the toe has got to be like the best place if you're going to get bitten by a rattlesnake because you can really easily um, tourniquet that. You can't tourniquet the taint if you get bitten by the taint or if you can't tourniquet the head, uh, I don't think. Anyway. Onto the 1920s. It's the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, see? It's a economic downturn. Oh, wait, that's our 20s. That's the 2020s. It's terrible. Was it both? Maybe it was both. Any hootie in the blowfish. Uh, we're talking about Jane Lancaster now, a 66-year-old woman who died on August 21st, 1921. I am noticing, right, a lot of these deaths, June, July, August, September, literally all of these deaths, October, there's one in October, uh, so far have been in that, so maybe it, it could be, I'm going to theorize now, is uh, in America, you know, June, July, August, September, October, is that like the, the uh, is it really hot there, what, because what? my seasons are, are reversed from your seasons in North America, like right now, it's, um, it's the first, of, oh, it's like the 4th of September today, um, and it's, I think it's, or now it's spring technically, is it spring? I always remember it like this. You start off December, January, February for us is is summer because it's really hot and, and Christmas, right? Uh, uh, so February and then March, April, May is autumn. Yeah, autumn. June, July, August is winter. So that would be your summer. Yeah. Summer and spring. Yeah, in, in America. That must be where it's really dangerous. Maybe because the snakes are more out and about because they, you know, they, they, they were cold-blooded so they have to be heated by the sun or... Maybe because people are out and about more because it's hot. I don't know, but there you go. Interesting little thing I've sort of started to pick up. Uh, anyway, uh, yes, August 21st, 1921, Jane Lancaster died, uh, probably from a timber rattlesnake. The bite occurred in Franklin Township at Snake Hollow. Good name. Uh, appropriate name. Near the present day, uh, ooh, how do you say this? S S Soto Trails State Forest, southeast of Chillicothe. In Ohio, in Ross County, Chillicothe again. An article in the Chillicothe Gazette explained that it could not be confirmed whether the bite Lancaster received was from a copperhead or a rattlesnake. Given the severity of her wounds, it was more likely to be a timber rattlesnake. Interesting. Rebecca Nimmons, 19 years old, died on July in July of 18, sorry, 1928 by a rattlesnake. Nimmons was killed by a rattlesnake in Pickens County, South Carolina. Maggie Collins, 33, was the next victim. She died on May 29th, 1929. Collins died from a rattlesnake bite while picking blackberries in Grady County, Georgia. 
And finally, in the 1920s, the last one, Wilma Hassinger, 15 years old, died on June 15, 1929. He was bitten while fishing along the Rattling Creek, also an interesting and appropriate name, near Lincolns, Pennsylvania, died from a rattlesnake bite. We're into the 30s. What happened in the 30s? I don't know. I wasn't there. Uh, Jess Coral was the first person to die. She was, oh, sorry, Jess was a man. Uh, usually it's a Jesse if it's a man, but Jess Coral, 28-year-old man, died on the 24th of July in 1931 by a copperhead. The farmer, Coral, was bitten on the hand while in the hayloft of his barn near Washington, Indiana. Very, very rough. Alfred Weaver, 35 years old, uh, died on May 4th, 1936 by another rattlesnake. Uh, Weaver, a 35-year-old itinerant, itinerant? What's that? Itinerant. I don't know what that is. Was bitten on the hand by a rattlesnake during a faith demonstration at a revival service in Barlow, Florida on May the... Wait, wait, hold on. On May the 3rd, 1936, he died the next day. Isn't Barlow, Florida the place where that guy died in like the 1800s and they banned it? Hold on. I swear to God, I, am I am I going crazy? I'm just scrolling back. Uh, Barlow, Florida. I'm pretty sure they said that they had banned them because of a bite in Barlow, Florida. Did I make that up? Yes, yeah, here. All the way back in the 1900s, uh, the anonymous male. Young man became seriously ill uh, snake bite during George Went Henley's religious service in Barlow, Florida. Shortly after, the town of Barlow passed a law that banned snake handling. Well, there you go. Uh, 30 years later, it happened again. Um, so maybe it wasn't outlawed or maybe it was re-unoutlawed, whatever you call it. I don't know. America's interesting because you've got so many states and you have all these different state laws. I don't know how you keep up with what's illegal in one state and what's not in another. At least here, we've only got like six states and two territories and the laws are pretty much similar. Don't fucking be a cunt is basically the whole um, the whole law system in Australia. Anyway, um, our next... Oh, yeah, sorry. He, he died the next day after refusing medical treatment. That was Alfred Weaver in the 30s. Um, the next victim, a Katie Adele Road, who was 25 years old. She died on August 13th, 1936. Road was bitten by a rattlesnake while walking down the steps of her home in St. George, South Carolina. She reportedly did not feel the strike initially, but after a family member noticed blood on her ankle, the rattlesnake was found coiled up near the steps. She was taken to a hospital in Somerville, South Carolina, but died approximately 15 hours after receiving the bite. That's interesting. There's a few cases of that where someone's been bitten by a snake and they haven't felt it. It's, uh, yeah, it's, that's, kind of, that's kind of one of my biggest fears is being bitten by a snake and not realizing it and then dying, just just vomiting and just feeling awful for ages and not, not knowing why. So luckily they found out why, but unfortunately she died before uh, anything can be done. Okay, the next story, there's, there's a fair chunk of information here. So let's see if this is an interesting story. Um, Ace Hargrove, fucking great name, Ace a uh, 64-year-old man died on June 20th, 1937. Now, he died from either a rattlesnake, an eastern copperhead, or a cottonmouth. They don't know. The Columbia Record article states that Ace Hargrove, a farmer near Cleo, South Carolina, was bitten by a rattlesnake while picking blackberries in a field near his home. The article, dated June 29th, 1937, mentions that Hargrove initially thought he was stung by a wasp, but then saw the snake as it slithered away. The certificate of death offers a slightly different account, stating that Hargrove was picking berries on the bank of a ditch near his home when he was bit on the right leg by a pilot snake. 
both the water moccasin and the eastern copperhead have been referred to as pilot snakes historically, making a proper attribution difficult with current records. There you go. Not so much interesting, just inf in, uh, information packed. Let's just call that one. Three more people died, at least on this list, in the 1930s. Uh, there's not a lot of information on two of them, so we'll get through them quick. A BT Wally was 34, and Marshall Ray Weddle was five years old. They both died in 1937, uh, BT Wally on July 21st, and Marshall Ray Weddle on July 24th. So three days apart from each other. Uh, in two different states, though, both from a rattlesnake, BT Wally was bitten while walking near Laurel in Mississippi, and Marshall Ray Weddle was bitten while playing near his home in Riggins, Idaho. Interesting. Final person to die in the 1930s on this list was a Mr. Paul D. Emerson. It was 50 years old. Uh, 50, not 15, 50. Uh, he died on September 17th in 1937 by a rattlesnake. A, oh, I, I called him Mr. Emerson. It's actually Dr. Dr. Emerson was a nationally known soil expert. Oh, I got excited for a second. I thought he'd be a doctor or something cool. He was a doctor of dirt. I'm the dirt doctor and I got bitten by a snake. Anyway... Dr. Emerson, nationally known as a soil expert, was found dead oh, on a trail eight miles west of Rapid City, South Dakota. I love city names in America. Bitten on the leg by a snake, Dr. Emerson had applied a tourniquet below the knee and made an incision over the wound with a razor blade before he died. Yeah, they tell you not to do that anymore. Tourniquet, you know, cut the supply of poison off, but don't, um, don't cut into yourself. Yeah, interesting. Are you guys ready for the 40s? Some shit was going down in the 40s across the world, uh, but it didn't stop the snakes. The snakes, snake, little interesting, snakes are, Ill, uh, you know, apolitical. They don't care if Nazis are storming over Europe. They're still going to bite Americans on the ankles. Okay, so the first person, well, the first two people who died, actually, in the 40s, they were both two years old. The first one was Reba Ann Cooper, who was two and a girl, and she died on April 28th, 1940. The daughter of a rancher, Cooper was bitten by a rattlesnake on the ranch near Rock Springs, Texas. John Charles Goss, who was also two, died a year later on June 23rd, 1941. He was bitten un, uh, sorry, he was bitten below the right knee while at a picnic near the city reservoir alongside the Willow Creek Highway in Bradford, Pennsylvania. A Mahel 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 Coffee 10-year-old female was the next victim. She died on July 21st of 1941, bitten by a rattlesnake while picking berries near her home in Lenore, North Carolina. The next few don't have a lot of information, so I will go through them quite fast. Dorothy Louise Key, aged eight, died on May 1st, 1942, bitten while walking in the woods near her home in Brandonton in Florida. Jerry Freer, seven years old, died on the 22nd of June, 1943. Freer died from a rattlesnake bite in Lafayette County in Florida. And Henry Skelton, 18 years old, died in 1945. Uh, Skelton died from a snake bite during a religious service in Cleveland, Tennessee. See, the snake species was unknown. Don't re hey religion. This you, you won, okay? The, you won. You, you you control the world. You don't need to have snakes in your services. I'm just gonna say that. Lewis Ford was the next victim who died in September of 1945. Ford was bitten by a rattlesnake during a religious service. Damn it! At a Dolly Pond church with signs following near Chattanooga, Tennessee. Jesus Christ! Hey guys, what did I just say? 
I'm also scrolling up and I see the word reverend, so I'm not feeling great about the next one. The next uh, victim was Anna Kirk, who was 26 years old. She died on September 4th, 1945. Again, from an unknown species of snake. Anna Kirk, the husband of Reverend Harvey Kirk, I'm not feeling good about this, died three days after she got bitten on the wrist thrice on September 1st, 1945, uh, during a religious service, goddammit, in the Faith Holiness Church in Stone Creek, Virginia. Stop it. She was going into... Oh, no. Jesus Christ, this sucks. She was going into labor just before dying without a physician present and her baby also died. Afterward, this is good. Afterward, Reverend Kirk was arrested, convicted of involuntary manslaughter and sentenced to three months in prison. Three months, that's not long enough, I'm going to say. But hey, I don't write the laws in Virginia 1945. That's a, that's got to be the best. I mean, it's terrible. That's got to be the most interesting story so far, surely. Wow. Poor woman. Poor baby. Uh, Mrs. Floyd. Oh, this is this sounds like a fake name. Like a fake name you give to a fake grandma. Mrs. Floyd Butterbore, who was 22 years old, died a few years later in July 18, 1947. Mrs. Butterbore was bitten by a timber rattler at her home on Piney Creek, 12 miles east of Chillicothe, Ohio, near the Tar Hollow State Forest. Chillicothe has popped up a lot lately. She was picking beans in her garden when she was bitten. She died the next day. This is the last known fatal fatality from a wild snake bite in the state of Ohio. I'll be interested to see if uh, later in this list we get to a you know a non-wild, like a, a domesticated snake or whatever, a pet snake in Ohio. But if not, that would be the last one on the list. Interesting. Um, Grace Olive Wiley, 64 years old. She was the second last person to die in the 40s. She died, this was interesting, from an Indian cobra, which are not native to uh, the Americas, as far as I'm aware. Wiley, an experienced heptologist, was known as the queen of the cobras for her work in the movie industry. Interesting. She was posing for a photograph with a juvenile cobra when she was bitten after a flashbulb startled the snake in Cypress, California. There you go. Uh, oh, she also, Grace Olive Wiley has her own Wikipedia page. Um, let's open that up and have a look. Uh, yeah, interesting. There's a photo of Grace holding a rattlesnake and a gila monster. I like gila monster. We're going to talk uh, talk about those. Uh, she's known because she's the first person successfully to breed rattlesnakes in captivity. That's very interesting. Well, good, good for her. Uh I'm not going to read everything. I'll just look at her legacy. Wiley described, uh, oh God, that's a really long name. R- Rumor baits hunger 40, a species of water strider. That's a kind of bug. And is common, uh, commemorated in the names of the Virgin Islands crested anole. Uh, oh, that's a little lizard. It's cute. And the insect, Cenocorixa wiley, a water boatman. Another bug. In 2006, the city of Long Beach opened Grace Park, named after her. Interesting. Um, his, his, uh, yeah, on July 20th, this is a bit more information. On July 20th, 1984, Wiley invited journalist Daniel P. Mannix to photograph her collection. While she was posing with the venomous Indian cobra, the flash of the photographer's camera spooked the snake and it lunged. 
She restrained it, but she was bitten, and she requested to be taken to a hospital. Unfortunately, her only vial of Cobra antivenom from the Halfkind Institute was accidentally broken. Oh no. And the hospital had antivenom serums only for North American species of snakes. Wiley was pronounced dead less than two hours after being bitten. Although family and friends tried to preserve her collection, it was ultimately auctioned off, and the snake that killed Wiley was subsequently displayed at an Arizona roadshow attraction. Shortly before she died, Wiley's life story was adapted for a comic book, True Comics number 58 in 1947. What an interesting woman. There you go. There's a lot more information there about Olive Grace Wiley, but um, sorry, Grace Olive Wiley, but I'll let you guys have a read of that. Uh, okay, and finally, the final person to die in the 40s, uh, only person uh, apart from Grace Olive Wiley to die uh, in the 40s after her, Ben Padgett, who was 26, uh, was bitten on the left knee while cutting trees near Maxville, Florida on the 2nd of September, 1949. Died from a rattlesnake. Okay, we're into the 50s now. Let me just check how we're going for time if we need a little break. It's only been 30 minutes. You guys are doing great. Hang on in there. Let's go into the, the 50s. The war's over, folks. Baby boomers are coming, uh, and, and they're going to ruin the economy for us, but not right now. Right now, it's great. Ruthie Craig, she was 50 years old when she died. Uh, this is July 15th of 1951. Ruthie Craig was bitten on the right forearm while handling a rattlesnake during a religious service in New Hope, Alabama. Oh, my God. Kill yourself. Uh, okay. I have very little... Very little patience for people who die in religious services. Of all the places where you shouldn't be dying, a religious service really is one of them. It makes it feel kind of culty that people are dying in your church. I'll be honest. Okay. Uh, the next person who died was Nathaniel Atkins. This is interesting. He was bitten by a quote-unquote giant rattlesnake while cutting pulpwood along the Ohio Orlando Highway in Kissimmee, Florida on August 18th, 1951. Interesting. Ooh, the next person's got a very fancy name. Albert L. Thornton Sr. was 67 years old, died on July 31st, 1952. The certificate of death indicates the individual was bitten on July 30th, 1952 in Beaufort, South Carolina, while working on a farm. Thornton died the next day at Ridgeland C uh, SC Hospital. South Carolina, sorry, SC. I don't know your, uh, your initials. What do you call them? The... Uh, what do you call when you shorten down your state to two letters? The initials? The, um, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. Um, Karen Perry. Now, this is probably the youngest person so far on the list. Was one years old when she died. 15, well, 15 months. 15-month-year-old Perry was playing in the backyard of her home in T, uh, Tujunga? Is that Tujunga? California? Tujunga? Uh, when she was bitten on the hand by a pencil-thin 18-inch long rattlesnake. That's very sad. Eloise Orr was nine years old. She also died from a rattlesnake. Nine-year-old Eloise Orr was bitten by a rattlesnake while her at, while at her home in Ridgeland, South Carolina, according to South Carolina death certificate records. The attending physician noted that they began treating Eloise uh, at approximately 9 a.m., one hour after the bite occurred, and that she succumbed to the effects of the bite 10 hours later, around 7 p.m., that's one thing that's always scared me about snakes is how quickly their venom acts on you. Like you can be bitten and within hours you're gone. That's terrifying. 
Friedra Hochstar, 25 years old, died on March 6, 1955. She was a German immigrant to the United States, performing as Princess Naja at nightclubs in Baltimore and Maryland. She was bitten by one or two cobras she used in her performance. She died at St. Joseph's Hospital, where she had been hospitalized previously for earlier snake bites. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Friedra, come on. Princess Naja. Very nice. Uh, George Went Hensley. Now, we talked about George Went Hensley ages ago because George Went Hensley, he has a Wikipedia, uh, Wikipedia page as well. Earlier on this list, one of the first people that died, I think, was during a service that this guy was holding. Let me just see if I can find it. Yes. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Remember how before I was like, oh, wait, I thought they outlawed that in Florida. And we went back to the anonymous male. Same guy, the anonymous young man who became seriously ill and died as a result of a snake bite while handling a snake during one of George Went Hensley's religious services. So 50 years after that, this guy must be old. 50 years after that, George Went Hensley died from a snake bite sustained while handling snakes during religious services in Florida. Um, he has a Wikipedia page. Let's just open that up and see. Because he sounds familiar. He was a Pentecostal minister, best known for popularizing the practice of snake handling. Yeah, well, at least two people died before he died, so he didn't do a great job. Um, let's see if there's any more info on his death. Uh, death. In early July 1955, Hensley began a series of meetings near Alpha, Alpha in Florida. He conducted the meetings without snakes for three weeks before procuring a five-foot-long snake and bringing it to a Sunday afternoon service on July 24th. Several dozen people gathered at an abandoned blacksmith shop for the observance. During the service, Hensley loudly delivered a sermon on the topic of faith. He removed the snake from the lard can in which it was stored, wrapped it around his neck, and rubbed it on his face. He walked around the audience while preaching, and then returned the snake to the can. As he placed the snake into the can, it bit him on the wrist. After a few minutes, Hensley became visibly ill, experiencing severe pain, a discolored arm, and hematysis. A vomiting of blood is what that means, vomiting of blood. He refused medical attention, although he remained in pain. What a genius. And was urged to seek both uh, medical treatment from both congregants and the Calhoun County Sheriff. One eyewitness claimed that Hensley attempt attributed his suffering to the congregation's lack of faith. Oh, what a dick. Although his wife, Sally, stated that she believed it was the will of God. <laughs> ah, I'm dying. Oh, what's going on? Oh, I think it's God. I think God hates you. Hensley died early the next morning. Calhoun County Judge Hannah Gaskin ruled his death a suicide. Wow. Wow. That's so, that's so fucking interesting. Wow. Yeah. I You know what? That almost is a suicide. If you get bitten by a snake and you refuse medical treatment, and it's a snake that you picked up and carried around and rubbed on your face, yeah, that kind of is a bit of a suicide. That's crazy. Wow. Hensley's relatives uh, traveled from Tennessee to Florida for his funeral, at which a country music band played. He was buried two days after his death at a cemetery two miles away from the blacksmith shop where he was bitten. After the funeral, some of the congregants met and declared their intention to continue handling snakes. Oh, for fuck's sake. Sally resolved to continue spreading her late husband's teachings, saying the incident saying after the incident that she had not lost an ounce of faith. Well, she should have. This guy sounded like a bit of an asshole. <laughs> All right. I mean, two people died from him, like, 
in this list already. And he's still doing it. What a, I'm, I mean, I, I don't like to say this, but I'm glad he died. <laughs> I, fuck that guy. Whatever. I don't care. I, I, come at me. I don't give a shit. Okay. Oh, got to move on from that one with something else. Uh, Anna Marie Yost died on August 29th, 1955. Uh, 1955. She was 46 years old. Anna Marie Yost was bitten on the arm while handling a rattlesnake during a religious... Oh, God. During a religious service at Savannah, Tennessee, on August 29, 1955, her brother, Mansell Covington, a well-known snake handler, was bitten on both hands during the same service, but he survived. The event is recounted in writer Dennis Covington's... <laughs> Dennis Covington's 1995 book, Salvation on Sand Mountain. Okay, one thing that we have to just notice now that we're, like, over 50 years into the list... Uh, in Australia, no, I, I can't remember any of the uh, bites being from a religious service. Now, there were a lot of bites that happened because people were snake handlers. They were, you know, working in sideshows and, and zoos and all that kind of stuff, and they got bitten by their own snakes. But there were no religious services where people got bitten by snakes in Australia. And I think that's a really good um, depiction of the differences between Australian culture and um, American culture. Now, American culture, we know it's very Christian to a to a detriment, I would say. Australia also, you know, um, I think non-religiosity is probably the biggest, you know, thing in the census. But after that, Christianity is still the biggest religion in, in the country. But I, I just, we don't, we're not that weird about it. Don't Pick up a snake in church. There's no reason to have a snake in church. I thought that Christians thought snakes were evil. So why are you bringing them into churches? It doesn't make a lot of sense. So, uh, yeah, every time someone dies from a snake bite in church, I'm going to get really mad. I'm going to get pissed off. I already am. I get less mad at the ones who have snakes in sideshows because at least they're, they're like... They're like circus performers. They're like quote unquote freaks. Okay, they're they're like they're not normalizing it. They're like, yeah, it's a it's a weird thing to do. Look at me, I have snakes. Don't have your goddamn priest do it anyway. All right. Um, also, it, like I like how in this thing it says her brother Mansell Covington uh, was bitten on both hands and survived. The event is recounted in Dennis Covington's book. So Dennis Covington surely is the brother of of those people. Why would they have the same name? Maybe they were married into the family. Anyway. Um, there's only three more people who died in the 50s, and then we might take a really small break. Carl P. Schmidt, who was 69, 67 years old. Sorry, I love saying 69 so much. It's like a reflex. 67 years old, died on September 26, 1957 by a boomslang, a very cool snake. Boomslangs are really sick. Look them up. Uh, they're from, I think, Africa, but boomslang are really cool-looking animals. Um, Schmidt, who was a renowned herpetologist, died in Chicago while documenting the effects of a venomous snake bite he was trying to identify. The snake was later identified as a juvenile African boomslang. Now, does that mean he was trying to... Wait, what? Okay, this is interesting. There's a link to an article with a headline... In quotes, he documented his own death by snake bite instead of going to the hospital. We're going to look that up right now. Um, oh, is, is that the right one? Hold on. If it makes me pay for it, I'm not doing it. It's making me pay for it. I'm not doing it. L we'll look it up later. It's fine. Okay, two more people, de uh, and then we'll have a break. Percy Miller, 13 years old, uh, died on the 10th 
of June 1958 by a rattlesnake. Miller, who was a 13-year-old boy from Bluffton, South Carolina, was reportedly bitten by a rattlesnake around June 4th, 1958, and then succumbed to the effects of the bite six days later at nearby Ridgeland, South Carolina Hospital, according to a South Carolina death certificate. He gives the number of the certificate. I don't think I need to read that out. And finally, a David P. Henson, 74 years old, died from a rattlesnake bite on July 26, 1959. And I can see, God damn it, his name is Reverend Henson. It would just be so fitting to cap off this first part of the episode with this. Let's see. Reverend Henson, described as an elderly minister in the Free Holiness Church, was bitten on the hand while handling a rattlesnake during a religious service in Robinwood, Alabama. Oh, wow. God damn it. <laughs> Relatives report that he had been handling snakes for more than 30 years and that he had survived several bites during that time. <sighs> I think I need a break. <laughs> I think I need to go and have a glass of water because I'm going to get I'm going to get more cranky. Okay. Don't have snakes in your religious service. I've already said it. I don't know who's listening, who's doing. If you if you're a priest and you're listening to the show, I would take it as an immense personal favor if you would not bring venomous reptiles into your congregation. Thank you. Go and have a break. We'll be back in a moment. Go and do a wee. Okay, I'm back. I've calmed off. If if we have any more of these religious service people that get killed, I won't make such a big deal out of it. Let's move on to the 60s, guys. 60s, uh, I think that's when everyone started taking drugs, and it was great. That's, <laughs> that's my understanding of the 60s. First person to die in the 1960s was Jimmy Cornell, who was a 14-year-old boy. He died on March 15th in 1961. Now, he died from, the, and I think this is the first time we've had this on list, an Eastern Diamondback Rattlesnake. And I'm pretty sure I saw a diamond rattlesnake at the museum the other day. And they're very cool looking animals. They're very angry though. Got an angry looking face. Uh, Jimmy was bitten on the hand by a diamondback rattlesnake while reaching into a gopher hole in Fort Myers, Florida. What an innocent time it used to be. On March 11th, 1961, he died four days later. Columbia Gay Hagerman. Uh, was, sorry, <laughs> I'm so immature. I just, I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh at the middle name, Gay. <laughs> Gay. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Columbia Gay Hagerman, a 22-year-old female, died on September. Oh, sorry, was bitten on September. No, it was died. Sorry, she died September 28, 1961. Hagerman was bitten on the right thumb during her first snake handling oh, at a church service in Jolo, West Virginia. Hooray! She declined medical assistance and died at her parents' home. Her parents had previously been bitten several times by copperheads and rattlesnakes, recovering each time without seeking treatment. Her older brother, Dewey Chafin, had been bitten by various venomous snakes over 100 times throughout his life, and he died in 2015 at the age of 82 if you think your parents are bad they're not as bad as columbia gay hageman's parents who let her die the next victim uh, was jerry DeBarry, who was 37 years old uh he died uh, on january 27 1964 DeBarry, the director of the salt lake city zoo was bitten on the left forearm by a south african puff adder when he opened the cage to tend to the animal there you go 
sad, but at least it wasn't a church. I, I'm, I'm okay with someone dying in that way because it wasn't a church. Uh, Donald Bepis. <laughs> Sorry, that's a funny last name. <laughs> Sorry. It's less funny because the kid's like a year old. Donald Bepis. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've got to explain why I'm finding this funny, because otherwise it just comes across. My my fiancé, oh, we got engaged, by the way, like yesterday, and that's the first time I've said it on air. Um, we, whenever we see Pepsi, we order Bepis instead of Pepsi. I don't know where it comes from, but it's like, if you want a, be a Pepsi, I'd be like, can I have a Bepis? <laughs> anyway, sorry, that's why I find it funny that this kid's name is Donald Bepis. Anyway, Donald Bepis died on August 4th, 1965 from a rattlesnake bite the 15 year old 15 month old don bepis was playing sorry was playing in the yard at his home in cat creek montana when he was bitten on both legs on august 4th frederick a shannon was a 43 year old male who died on august 21st 1965 and he died from a mojave rattlesnake Bitten on a finger on his left hand by a Mojave rattlesnake while collecting specimens near Klondike, Arizona on the 29th of August, 1965, Shannon was one of the foremost American herpetologists, a physician and an expert on snake bites, having co-authored co a manual for the U.S. Armed Services. He died on August 31st on 19, sorry, in 1965 after being airlifted to a hospital in Los Angeles. That's crazy. Oh, he had a, a Wikipedia page too. Shall we see if there's more information? We probably should. That would be the responsible thing to do. And there is a fruit fly buzzing around my head and it makes me want to kill myself. Okay. Oh, not a lot of information. He died. For, uh, uh, yeah, no, that's He died from the bite of a Mojave rattlesnake he attempted to catch. There you go. That's all the information there is. Okay. Uh, moving on. Uh, the final two victims in the 1960s, a Wesley Howard Dickinson, who was 45 years old. He was, he uh, died from a King Cobra bite. An experienced heptologist, Dickinson was bitten while force feeding, well, you shouldn't do that, an eight foot Indian King Cobra in Santa Ana in California on July 10th, 1966. Dickinson had previously survived bites from other cobras, rattlesnakes, a cottonmouth, and a gila monster. Uh, yeah, he died on July 10th, the same day he was bitten. And finally, James Saylor, a 24-year-old man, was bitten um, while handling a rattlesnake during a religious service in Covington, Kentucky. Fuck off. <laughs> February 19, 1967. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I don't have anything else to say. I don't have anything to say. Let's move on to the 70s, guys. It was a groovy time, except if you were a snake bite victim. Brian L. Bristow, Bristow was 28 years old when he died on St December 29th, 1971 by a cottonmouth. Bristow had been collecting snakes in a bag. <laughs> Sorry, it sounds funny. Just like a random Sunday morning activity. I'm, I'm just collecting snakes in a bag, but he was bitten on the hand by a cottonmouth moccasin in Garyville, Louisiana on December 29th, 1971. He died that same day. Susan Mary Gaburi uh, was 34 years old when she died while driving near St. Augustine, Florida. 
Oh, this is fucked. I hate this. While driving near St. Augustine in Florida, Gaburi had stopped to relieve herself from the bushes beside the road. Thinking she had been pricked by a spiny plant, possibly the Spanish bayonet, she went to the emergency room where she was treated for an allergic reaction and released. She returned home and was found dead the next morning. A snake expert determined from the size of the bite that Galbury had likely been bitten by a diamondback rattler. Hmm. That's don't don't cop a slash in the bushes, ladies. It's dangerous. Uh, a Beulah Bucklin was the next victim. She was 59 years old. Bucklin of Charleston, West Virginia, was bitten while handling a snake during a religious service. Yay! Our favorite in Frazier's Bottom. <laughs> bottom west virginia on september 16th 1972 she died eight days later a gordon d ball died ball was presumably bitten by a snake possibly a massagunia what is that that's come up a few times massa uh, oh it's a rattlesnake species found in central and eastern north america from southeast ontario interesting uh while traveling alone through the bergen byron swamp on a picture-taking expedition, a five... Oh, this is sad. A five-day police search recovered Ball's body from a small clearing near War Boys Road on the swamp's northern perimeter. An autopsy report listed snakebite as the presumptive cause of death. Uh, he died on August 5th, 1973. Shirley Wages, 72 years old, died in October of 1973 from a rattlesnake. Wages was bitten by a rattlesnake during a religious service, religious service in the Pentecostal Holiness Church near London, Kentucky. He died from the bite nearly eight hours later at his home. Very good. Very good. No feelings about that. Richard Lee Williams, 33 years old, died on April 2nd, 1974. <sighs> Sorry, I should say Reverend Williams. <laughs> of course, Reverend Williams of Columbus, Ohio, was bitten while handling a snake during a religious service in Switzer, uh, West Virginia. Switzer, Switzer. I don't think it would be Switzer. Switzer, West Virginia, on April 4th, 1974. Hopefully the next one's not a religious service. Curtis Mount, 61. Uh... Is old, died on May 19th from a rattlesnake bites. Mounts was bitten on the right arm while handling a snake during a religious... Ah! What? <sighs> Too many. Okay. Religious service in Ben's Run, West Virginia on May 16th. He died three days later. <sighs> okay. And finally... Uh, the final death in the 70s, Gregory Lee Hall, aged three years old, died on May 31st, 1976, was bitten on the right hand by a copperhead he picked while he picked up while playing near his home in Jacksonville, Alabama on May 31st, 1976. He was not playing in a church. He was just playing. Okay. On to the 80s, guys. The 80s. It's the age of Wall Street or something. I don't know much about the 80s in America. I don't know. Greed was good. Something about that. I'm not sure. A Mr. John Holbrook. I said Mr. so confidently and then I looked over. <clears throat> a Reverend John Holbrook. You know where this is going? Who was 38 years old. Died in August of 1982. Reverend Holbrook was bitten while handing a, handling a rattlesnake during a religious service at Oceana, West Virginia. Holbrook repeatedly refused medical assistance because his religion did not permit it. Hey, man. Sick religion. Um... Don't want to be offensive to anyone, but if your religion permits uh, medical assistance, 
maybe pick a better religion. I don't know. There's heaps of good religions in the world. I don't have any of them. I just do what I want to do. But, uh, yeah, if you <laughs> – I don't want to harp on it. I don't want to be mean to, to folks, but that's just dumb. Okay, whatever. The next person's name was Mac. Mac Ray Wolford, actually. Uh, Wolford was bitten on the arm by a timber rattlesnake during... <laughs> you guys getting bored of this? I am. During a religious service at the Lord Jesus Temple in Mile Branch near Lager, West Virginia, Wolford did not initially seek medical treatment. An ambulance was summoned eight hours after Wolford was bitten, but he died during transport to Stevens Clinic in Welch, West Virginia. Wolford's son, Mark Wolford, died in 2012 under similar circumstances. Just going to power on through because I'm going to get mad again. Richard Barrett, 50 years old, uh, died in 1984 in July. Richard Barrett was bitten by a rattlesnake while handling five venomous snakes during a religious service at Wade's Chapel in Cartersville, Georgia. He refused medical treatment and was taken to the pastor's home nearby the church, dying approximately seven hours later. I reckon we should rename this um, episode from, you know, serpents and suffering to like serpents and uh, some word to do with religiousness, church or something like that. Leave it with me. You might find that it's, it's named something different. Who knows? A Charles Herman Prince who was 49, uh, 40, sorry, 47 years old. He died on August 7th. Why am I getting dyslexic? August 19, 1985. Oh, good. He was a reverend. I wonder what happened. Reverend Charles Prince of Cannon, North Carolina, was bitten multiple times by a snake um, while trying to save a small child from a snake bite. Just kidding. It was during a religious service at the Apostolic Church of God near Greenville, Tennessee. He also drank strychnine during the religious service. Pretty sure you don't do that. He refused medical treatment and died 36 hours later. Good. Surely, I'm just, I'm getting blunt now because this is so preventable. Okay. I'm just browsing, just browsing upwards. There is no respite from the religious uh, services, so let's just let's just keep going and hold our hands virtually together while we while we get through this. Shirley McCleary, thirty eight years old, February thirteenth, eighteen at nineteen eighty six, was the date of her death. Shirley McCleary of Toledo, Ohio, died seven hours after being bitten multiple times by an eastern diamondback rattlesnake during a religious service for her uncle's funeral in Baxter, Kentucky. She did not seek medical treatment as the other church members were praying oh, to perform a faith healing attempt on her. Yeah, that's no, that's just as good. That's just as good. I don't need an MRI and anti-venom. I just need fucking Mrs. Brown to just think hard enough about it and I'll be better. You can be religious and be smart. Lots of people do it. You can, you can do it. I, I know lots of uh, religious people who are very, very clever and very smart and uh, have good common sense. It's possible. I don't know what was happening in America from the 1900s to the 1980s and probably closer to the modern day. I really thought that the closer we got to the present day, the less this would be happening. Um, I, but no, I, I, I am gobsmacked. I am shocked. I've ne- I, this. I, the one thing I'm taking away from this episode is that ninety uh, percent of the deaths from snakes in America could have been prevented because you just by not going to church. <sighs> okay, sorry. All right. 
Glenn R. Alexander uh, was a 29-year-old man, died on March 25th, 1987. Alexander was bitten during the 23rd annual Brownwood Rattlesnake Roundup in Brownwood, Texas on March 21st and died four days later. Oh, the one thing that could be dumber than getting bitten in church, bitten in the Brownwood Rattlesnake Roundup. At least you know what you're getting into there, I guess. Finally, uh, 1989, August 19th, that's the date of the last death in the 80s, a man named Curtis Davidson uh, was killed. Davidson was bitten on the top of his right hand as he transferred a six-foot rattlesnake from one cage to another in Silver Springs Nature Park near uh, Ocala, Florida. Uh, Look, okay, I don't want anyone dying. But I just feel like it makes more sense. It's okay. Like, I can forgive if you work in a reptile park um, or, or a nature park and you're transferring snakes and you get bitten, then yeah, like that can happen. It, that's not that preventable, right? I'm sure there's practices in place to stop that from happening. But like, you're just going to church. Okay. All right. Sorry. Sorry. If there are any religious people who listen to the show, like, good, I'm glad. You're, I respect you. You should be allowed to do that. I just hope that you understand how ridiculous and dumb this is, okay? And and, and that you understand my frustration at the, preventi- the preventable deaths that have occurred all throughout history. How did I not know about this? How come no one told me this? This is crazy. Okay. Whew. All right. Into the 90s when I was born. Uh... Back in the 90s, I was in a... I got the fly. No, I didn't. Yes, I did. I got the fly that was buzzing in my head. Got him. Ew. He's on my hand. Okay. The first death in the 90s occurred in 1991 on the 13th of July. The person's name was Jimmy Ray Williams Jr., which is a great name. Jimmy Ray Williams Jr., a resident of Spring Creek, North Carolina, died after being bitten by a timber rattlesnake during uh, a religious service in the House of Prayer in Jesus' name in Morristown, Tennessee. His father died in 1973 after drinking strychnine during a religious service in the nearby Carson Springs Holiness Church in Jesus' name. Good. Okay, let's move on. Nothing new to say. Ray Johnston, not Ray William Johnston, just Ray Johnston, 52 years old, died on December 2nd, 1991. Johnston, a resident of Galax. Oh, that sounds like a like a cosmic giant creature that's going to kill us all. Galax, Galactus, in Galax, Virginia, was bitten twice on his left wrist by a timber rattlesnake in, drumroll please, the Church of the Lord Jesus in Yolo, West Virginia. He refused medical treatment and died 13 hours later. Whatever. Sure. Good. Brian Leslie West, 25 years old, died from an Indian cobra bite on the 29th of May, 1992. Mr. West, who resided in Emmitsburg, Maryland, had a state permit to keep more than two dozen snakes. He was tending to an Indian cobra in his basement when the snake bit him on the foot. Five minutes later, he went into cardiac arrest and never woke up. He was pronounced dead an hour later at Frederick Memorial Hospital. It just goes to show how venomous Indian cobras are. <clears throat> okay, well, at least he was in his basement, not in church. Kale Saylor, a 77-year-old man, <clears throat> uh, died on March 8th in 1995. This is the first death. We skipped like three years there where there were no entries on the, on the list. Um, this is the first death that occurred while I was actually alive. I would have been uh, two years old at this point. Or, yeah, uh, nearly two. <clears throat> Sailor, a Pentecostal preacher, 
well, fuck you, was, <laughs> was bitten while handling a rattlesnake during a religious service in Bell County, Kentucky. Sailor figured, uh, figured prominently in David Kimbrough's 2002 book, Taking Up Certains, Serpents, Snake Handlers of Eastern Kentucky. You don't get more time spent on you, Kale, because you didn't need to die. Um, Melinda Brown, 28 years old. Brown was bitten while handling a snake during a religious service in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, on August 6th, 1995. She died two days later. Brown's husband, John Wayne Pumpkin Brown, was killed by a snake during a religious service in 1998. Well, I'm sure we'll get there. Uh, sorry, her name was Melinda Brown. She died on August 8th, 1995 by a rattlesnake. Dewey Bruce Hale, 40 years old. He died on January 15th, 1995. He was 40 years old. Uh, Hale was bitten on the hand while removing a rattlesnake from a box during a religious service in Enigma, Georgia. He refused medical treatment and died nine hours after his home, at, at his home. Interesting. Interesting there's a correlation between being bitten in church and not wanting medical treatment. It's almost like... Um, they're fucking stupid, but that's fine. Daryl Ray Collins, 23 years old, died on December 14th, 1997 from a snake that was probably a rattlesnake. Collins was bitten during, guess what? A religious service in the community of RJ Bell County, Kentucky. Two more left. One of them, it's not much of a spoiler. It's Mr. John Wayne Pumpkin Brown Jr., which we already talked about. He died on October 3rd of 1998 at the age of 34. Brown was bitten while handling a rattlesnake during a religious service in Macedonia, Alabama. He had reportedly survived 22 previous snake bites. Brown's wife, Melinda, had been killed by a snake during a religious service three years earlier in August of 1995. The Browns left five children unorphaned. How... Goddamn selfish are these people. I'm sorry. I'm getting, I'm genuinely getting to a point where my anger isn't funny. I'm actually just annoyed. It's so selfish of them to do that. It's so selfish of him to do that. He knew his wife died three years earlier from the exact same thing. And he did it. If I, if my partner died in like a, a skydiving accident, right? I would never go skydiving again. That would be so disrespectful to her. Um, and, and our hypothetical, orphaned kids okay the last person to die in the 1990s anita finch who was 33 years old this one uh, thank thankfully does not seem to be in a religious service uh she reportedly died on december 17th 1999 finch was bitten by either of these two snakes that she kept as pets in her van news california home so it was either a, a gaboon viper gaboon viper interesting Oh, that's a scary-looking snake. Or a hognosed sand viper. Ooh, it's got a little spike on its nose. I'm scared. Uh, okay, we're in the 2000s now, guys. 9-11's coming. <laughs> Sorry. I've, like, I've been trying to, like, break up the, the decades and, like, yeah, that's that's what I think of. Anyway, fair enough. I was, like, five. So I'm, I was there. It's allowed. Okay. Derek Lima, two years old. First person to die in the 2000s was September of 2000, September 16th. Uh, Lemma was bitten in the thigh by a rattlesnake while helping his father, Victor Lemma, in their Lakewood Ranch, Florida backyard. Sorry, the kid was two years old. What help was he doing? All right, never mind. Pat Hughes, 45 years old, died on August, in August of 20, sorry, I nearly said 2002, 2002. Hughes was bitten on the finger by a small snake in his own garage. He was admitted to a Sierra Vista Regional Health Center in Sierra Vista, Arizona, and treated with anti-venom, but he died of, quote-unquote, complications associated with the bite. 
I'm uh, enjoying this little reprieve from religious services. I don't know about you guys. It's been like three or four in a row. But can we keep it going? Ross Cook, 50 years old, died in May of 2003. Cook was killed in Lyle Creek, San Bernardino County in California, having stepped on a snake he mistook for a log. Great. No religious service. That's fine. Dwayne Long, 45 years old. Rev Damn it! He's a reverend. That's never a good sign. It's never like Reverend Dwayne Log was bitten by a snake accidentally when he was camping or anything like that. It's always on purpose. All of these should be suicides if you ask me. Reverend Dwayne Long was bitten in a finger, I guess on a finger, by a rattlesnake during a religious service at his home in Jonesville, Virginia on April 11th, 2004. He did not seek medical treatment and he died the next day. Fine, whatever. I don't care anymore. Trent Lepret, 31 years old. He died on June 20th of 2004. Lepret was bitten on each hand while swimming. Oh, wow. Swimming in uh, Sagahatchee. Is that how you say? Sa Sagahatchee Creek near ooh, Lochapoca. I don't know any of these names. Lochapoca, Lochapoca, Alabama on June 16th, 2004. He was admitted to East Alabama Medical Center in Oak, 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 fuck me. Opilica. That yeah, sounds right. He developed complications and died several days after treatment. Interesting. Uh, now, Alexandria Hall, she was 44 years old and she died, this is interesting, from an Urutu pit viper. She was bitten at her home and died two days later from breeding in her, uh, bleeding in her brain. The Urutu pit viper is a highly venomous pit viper species found in South America. Wow. Cre creepy. She died on September 6, 2004. July 2005 was the next time someone died. That person's name was Margaret Wilson White. She was 54 years old. White was bitten in Hayes County, Texas, near Wimbley along Ranch uh, to Market Road 12, about a quarter mile west of Co uh, County Road 213. That doesn't mean much to me. Uh, our next victim was a German tourist named Marcus Wolf. He was died. He, he died from a rattlesnake bite on September 12, 2005. Wolf, a German tourist, was bitten while hiking near Wilcox in Arizona. Joe Gudry, Guidry. I don't know how to say that name. Guidry, 54 years old, died in October of 2005. Guidry the Putnam County, Florida fire marshal went to help a neighbor who had spotted a rattlesnake while mowing her grass. He shot the snake. It went under a shed and Gaiji was bitten when he reached under it. Well, at least he was trying to help. Uh, now I'm not great on name, this name here, but I'm going to do my best. Ignacio Hernandez, Hernandez, Hernandez twice. That's really interesting. Um, June 10th, 2006, Hernandez Hernandez became the first person to die in the United States from a fatal coral snake bite since 1967. He and Jesus, or Jesus, how do you say it? Is it Jesus when it's like a Spanish? Uh, Jesus uh, Morita, I'll just say that. Both of Bonita Springs, Florida, were bitten by a coral snake they tried to kill. Oh, well, they tried to kill it first. Linda Long who was 48 years old at the time of her death. She died in November of 2006, November 5th to be specific. Long died after being bitten by a snake during a serpent handling service at church. Okay. All right. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. I'm over it. Douglas John Hillier, Hillier died at the age of 48 years old on September 1st, 2007. Hyler was bitten on his hand while attempting to cut off the rattles 
from what he thought was a dead snake. Okay, well, there you go. From what he thought was a dead snake that he came across the road while driving near Cleveland, Georgia. Medical help was summoned immediately, but took 45 minutes to arrive. He survived in intensive care for 42 days before succumbing to its effects. He was reportedly very allergic to bee stings and poison ivy. There you go. At least that guy, he thought the snake was dead before he cut it. If you find any dead animals of any kind, guys, just leave them be. Just, like, don't cut anything off them, please, if you can avoid it. The next victim's name was Jackie Ledwell. She died in October of 2007 at the age of 63. Ledwell was bitten by a Mojave rattlesnake while taking a walk in Pauldron, Arizona. David, oh, sorry, James David Bear, 37 years old, died. He was bitten on the thumb at his mobile house. The canebrake rattlesnake that bit him was one of 179 snakes he kept and bred in various containers. Oh, wow. And 84 of the snakes were venomous. Um, I'm all for if you're a, a hoptologist or you want to keep snakes and you're responsible, you can. I think that 179 snakes in your mobile house, which makes me think it's like a... Um, like a trailer park house, you know, one of those might not be the best thing to do. Okay. But at least it wasn't in church. And finally in the two thousands, uh, in 2009, October 10th, a Richard Rupert, who was 68 years old, he died uh, while hunting with his grandson in Olgathorpe County, Georgia. He was bitten by a timber rattlesnake. Well, there you go. Okay. We're on to the 20, 2010s. Now we're getting very, very close to the modern day. So maybe we'll get some really, um, you know, really interesting stories. A George Yancey, 35 years old, died on May 9th, 2010. Yancey was bitten while pulling up... His... <laughs> Sorry. The way it's written is very random. Yancey was bitten while pulling up his pants in Smithville, Texas. He was bitten by a rattlesnake, probably a Western Diamondback, but also possibly a timber rattlesnake. Eddie Lee Dormini. Dormini? Dormini? Dormini was killed in Enigma, Georgia. Dormini was changing a lawnmower belt when he was bitten several times on his wrist by a rattlesnake. He died on May 21st, 2010. Peyton Hood, who was a one-year-old girl, died on August 11th, 2010, accidentally stepped on a baby Western Diamondback while climbing down a ladder at Possum Kingdom Lake, Texas. The snake struck her main artery. She was rushed to the hospital but died within a few hours. That's, that's a very sad one. That one's very sad. William Prince, this name sounds familiar. William Prince, who was 67 years old, died on October 13th, 2010. Prince was bitten above the right ankle while wading across a stream at Cuyamaca uh, River Reserve. I don't even know. In California. That's fine. He had been taking part in a study of steelhead trout that was funded by a State Department of Fish and Game grant. According to witnesses, Price stopped breathing within minutes of being bitten. The bite marks on his foot were reportedly an inch and a half across. Prince was airlifted to Palama Medical Center, but he died later. Wade Westbrook, who was 26 years old, he died from a bite from a copperhead snake. Westbrook was bitten just above the right elbow while handling a copperhead. He had been attempting to determine the snake's sex. Hey, man, it doesn't matter. The snake's sex, it's fine. Why do you have to look at that? It's weird. According to witnesses, he tried to extract the venom with a tool after he was bitten. He then, tried, he then began coughing and vomiting blood before he collapsed. Westbrook was pronounced dead on arrival at 
Erlanger Hospital in Chattanooga, Tennessee. The cause of death was determined to be anaphylactic shock as a result of a snake bite. Westbrook had been previously bitten by a copperhead, which may have made him hypersensitive to the snake's venom. He died on January 29th, 2011. A Mr. Mark Shaw died on April 5th, 2011. He was 47 years old. Shaw was bitten by a rattlesnake he was trying to kill in Bastrop County in Texas. Probably by a rattlesnake who was a western diamondback, but also possibly a timber. This is interesting, this one. A black mamba. This has not been on the list. Alita Stacy was found dead in her home in Putnam County, New York. She illegally kept numerous venomous snakes in her home, one of which was the deadly black mamba. She died at the age of 56 on June, in June of 2011. Now, Mark Randall Wolford, he was killed by a timber rattlesnake. Wolford was bitten on the thigh while handling a timber rattlesnake as part of an outdoor religious service at Panther State Forest in McDowell County, West Virginia. Wolford did not initially seek medical treatment for his injury, surprise, surprise, but he was taken to Bluefield Regional Medical Center, where his condition began to deteriorate some eight, eight hours later. Wolford was a pastor and often handled his pet snake during church services. Wolford's father, Mark, Mac Wolford, died in 1983 under similar circumstances. I thought that sounded familiar. There you go. He died in 2012. Terry Brown also died in 2012 in July at the age of 50. Brown died of a heart attack one day after he was bitten by a copperhead snake while camping on the Current River in Missouri. The coroner's office listed the cause of death as a heart attack with a snake bite being a contributing factor. Witnesses told investigators that Brown had seen a snake in one of the tents and was trying to remove it when the snake bit him on the right thumb. Yeah, gotta be careful when camping. It's one of my biggest fears being bit more you're camping out in the wilderness, but better than dying in church. Okay. Jack Redmond was a 70-year-old man when he died. He was likely killed by one of the 24 venomous snakes he kept in his home in Chesterfield, Virginia. He was, we don't know what type of snake killed him. It was too many, of, too many options, I guess. Uh, October 2nd, 2012 was when he died. Ernest Birch was 80 years old when he died on July 2nd, 2013. Birch found the snake at his garage in Armorchi, Georgia. Not wanting to kill it, he tried to move it with a broom, but lost his balance, fell on top of the snake, and was bitten on his left arm. He was rushed to hospital and received eight vials of antivenom, but died 30 hours later regardless. Damn. It's a timber rattlesnake that time. Um, now, the next victim, for some reason there's no information about this, just says they were killed in Salem, Alabama by a rattlesnake, on uh, September 20th, 2013, his name was Daniel Frank Mitchell, and he died at the age of 53 years old. Now, Jamie Coots. First thing I'm noticing here is Jamie Coots has got a Wikipedia page. Oh, you know why? Because he was a Pentecostal pastor in Kentucky who was featured in the National Geographic Channel reality TV show Snake Salvation. Salvation, that could be the name of the title, Serpents and Salvation, there you go, let's do that, uh, which documents the lives of people who practice snake handling. He died of a rattlesnake bite during service, there you go, that's what his page says. Coots was bitten on the right hand during a service at his full gospel tabernacle in Jesus' name in Middlesbrough, Kentucky. After the bite, Coots dropped the snakes, but then picked them back up and continued the ceremony. Later, he was driven to his home. When paramedics arrived, his relatives refused medical treatment for him, saying it was inconsistent with his religion. He died at home. Dumb as shit. Okay, whatever. <laughs> Braden Bullard, four years old, died on June 20th, 2014. Bitten while playing 
Oh, well, planting. That. I thought it said playing watermelons, like a bongo or something. Bitten while planting watermelons in his backyard in Bryceville, Florida. He was rushed to hospital but died two weeks later. Uh, on July 8th, 2014, so only a few weeks later, Timothy Levins, who was 52 years old, he died from a copperhead snake while camping at Sam A. Baker State Park in Missouri. Levins walked outside, saw a snake, and brought it to his son's attention. When he picked it up, the snake bit him. Well... Probably shouldn't have picked it up then. Levins walked back into the cabin, washed his hand at the kitchen sink and sat down on the couch. When he became sick, someone from a neighboring cabin came over to help and performed CPR. Levins was pronounced dead at an area hospital. Yeah. Again, don't pick up a snake. Just look at it. Try to scare it away if you need to, but like, just don't pick it up. That's very stupid. David uh, Giles, or Giles, I'm not sure. He died on May 20th, 2015 by a snake. We don't know what kind of snake, but it was likely a rattlesnake. Now, Giles of Watkinsville, Georgia, was bitten while he was alone in his Arnoldsville, Georgia house. He normally carried a snake bite kit. Oh, sorry, he wasn't in his house. Sorry, he was walking. Um, He normally carried a snake bite kit, but did not have it with him this time. He drove to a nearby house to seek help, but collapsed and died. There you go. Gilbert DeLeon died in 2015 on May 23rd at the age of 37. DeLeon was bitten on each leg while wading in the James River near Nixon, Missouri. After the bite, he did not seek medical attention and he died the next day. The county coroner stated the cause of death listed on the death certificate states undetermined because DeLeon also had a lethal level of the narcotic oxycodone sorry, in his system along with alcohol and a non-lethal level of hydrocodone. Okay, damn. At least he was high when he probably didn't even notice getting bitten. Jesus. Grant Thompson died in 2015 from a monocled cobra. We haven't seen one of those before. They're beautiful, beautiful snakes. Thompson was found unresponsive in his car in a Lowe's store parking lot in Austin, Texas. He was taken to a hospital where he was pronounced dead. A monocled cobra that he was known to own was missing and was later found dead nearby, having been run over by a car. An autopsy was performed and Thompson's death was ruled as a suicide. That is interesting. That's interesting. I don't know why they would have ruled that one a suicide. Uh, let's read that story. I know we're this is turning into a very long episode. What are we up to? Like an hour 20? But um, I think it's worth it. Uh, here, autopsy. Teen used Cobra to commit suicide. Oh, can't read it. Oh, snap. Something went wrong. It's still loading. Maybe I'll um get lucky. Oh, oh, I can't read it because I'm not an American. You fucking racists. America, come on. Come on. Let me read your stuff. Whatever. Okay. Um, <laughs> Let's go back to that page. Uh, all right. Where are we up to? Uh, Russell E. Davy Davis was 39 years old. He died in July 19th of 2015 by a timber rattlesnake. Davis was sitting by a fire at his family's camp in Elk County, Pennsylvania, when he was bitten by a rattlesnake. He was taken to a hospital and from there was airlifted to a Pittsburgh area hospital. While in the helicopter, Davis suffered a cardiac arrest and was subsequently pronounced dead upon arrival to the hospital. The cause of death was an anaphylactic reaction from the snake's venom. No, No autopsy was performed and the death was ruled as an accident. Now, I am noticing, you know, there's a lot of information in the 2010s in particular. Um, and that's, like I said, the closer we get to the present day, um, 
the the more information we're going to find because things get recorded more accurately. The news is better at, you know, we've got the 24 hour news cycle, all that stuff. So that's why there's so much more information and such a longer list once we get here. We're only halfway through the 2010s, although it does look like there's not that many left anyway. So uh, John David Brock, who was 60 years old, uh, he died. He was a preacher from Stony Fork, Kentucky. I wonder what happened to him. He was bitten on the left arm during a religious service at the Mossy Simpson Pentecostal Church in Jensen, Kentucky. I wonder if he accepted medical treatment and made a full recovery. Hmm? Oh no, he refused treatment and he died in his brother's home. That's cool. He was bitten by an unknown species of snake, but likely a timber rattlesnake. He died on July 28th, 2015, at the age of 60. Wayne Grooms died from a rattlesnake bite on June 12th, 2016. Grooms was in the Santee National Wildlife Refuge in South Carolina when a rattlesnake bit his lower leg. He collapsed and died within 15 minutes. That is, well, he was old, but that's a long, that's really quick. He may have had an undisclosed condition which contributed to the severity of his reaction to the bite. Yeah, I'd say he was 70 years old and that might have been the unknown condition, but whatever. Daniel Hoss, H-O-H-S, Hoss, yeah, that's nice, 31 years old, died from a rattlesnake on October 7th, 2017. Hoss was bitten on the ankle while hiking near Golden, Colorado. He was taken to a local hospital in critical condition and was pronounced dead the following day. Oh, no. Barry Lester. Uh, Oh, we've only got five more. Four more. Four more to go in the 2010s. Barry Lester was 57 years old when he died April 29th, 2018 in Osage County, Oklahoma. Sounds like a lovely place. Lester was driving down a road when he spotted a rattlesnake. I wonder if he just left it be. Uh, No, he tried to move it to safety, but he was bitten on both hands. He collapsed shortly thereafter and was pronounced dead. Oh. The saddest ones are when they try to help, when they're trying to help a friend or they're trying to help the animal. But like with snakes, guys, just leave them, leave them be. If they get hit by a car, it's sad, but it's it's more sad if you get bit and die. And the snake probably gets killed anyway. Um, Lawrence Walters was 70 years old. He was a man uh, and was killed on June 4th, 2018 uh, in Spearfish. Is that the name of the place or what he was doing? Oh, it is. It's a place. Spearfish in Lawrence County, South Dakota. Spearfish looks like a beautiful place. Tenth most populous city in South Dakota. Wow. That's a lot of, not many people there. Okay. Walters was playing golf on the Elkhorn Ridge Golf Course in Spearfish. He was looking for a ball in tall grass when he was bitten on the ankle. He was rushed back to the clubhouse in a cart where another employee performed CPR until an ambulance arrived, but was pronounced dead at at Spearfish Hospital. That's sad. Two more. A man named Oliver Chum Baker. Chum is the middle, uh, like the nickname in the middle. Chum Baker uh, was 52 in Winston County, Alabama. Baker was at his home near Lewis Smith Lake when he was bitten by a copperhead snake and lost consciousness within two minutes. CPR was performed and he was later taken to a local hospital in critical condition. Baker was airlifted to Huntsville Hospital where he died on the 27th of May. He was killed by a copperhead snake at the age of 52, very sad. Finally, Priscilla Meredith was 62 years old when she died uh, in Waverly, Georgia. Meredith was bitten by a rattlesnake while in a friend's garden on May 17th when she went to sit down. She was medically sure she was in a medically induced coma for several weeks until her death on june 12th meredith was not able to receive antivenom due to her allergies which doctors said would have put her life at risk 
damn, died from a timber rattlesnake bite, 12th of June, 2019. And finally, guys, we're up to the 2020s. There are only three deaths in the 2020s, so we are nearly at the end of our list. Here we go. Been a long one today, guys. I appreciate you sticking with me. If you're sticking with me, here's the thing. In uh, the Instagram post for this thing, for this episode, comment the word or comment the emoji. Um, what's a random emoji? Let me just really quickly look at my most esoterically used emojis. Let's have a look. Let's have a look. Hold on. Bear with me. Um, what about if we all post a... Um, uh, Let's post, there's an emoji, it's like a graph with a red line going up. The red line graph. If you're listening to this part of the episode, post the, the red line graph and I'll know that you're a true man-eater, you're a true pal of the program. Um, I'll treat you like real special and stuff. Okay, anyway, David Risson uh, was 49 years old when he died January 19th, 2022, very recently. We don't know what species of snake killed him. But he died in Pomfret, Maryland. Riston was found dead in his home, which he kept 124 snakes, including black mambas, cobras, and rattlesnakes. The Maryland Department of Health confirmed he died of a snake envenomation. There you go. Okay. Um, Simon Curat, six years old. He died on July 5th of 2022 in Colorado Springs in Colorado. Curat was bitten while riding his bike with family in Bluestrom Prairie open space. He collapsed immediately and paramedics were summoned. Despite medical treatment, he died five days later at the Children's Hospital in Colorado. Very sad. And finally, the last one. And I don't think this... Yes, okay. I was very nervous that this would be about um, a, a pastor or someone in a, in a congregation dying, but no, it is another thing we've come to learn from the list, uh, come to expect. William H. Marty Martin was 80 years old. He died on August 3rd, 2022, so about, about a year ago, actually, just over a year ago, uh, by a timber rattlesnake. He died in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. Now, Martin, who was a respected snake researcher, was bitten by a captive snake at his home. And there you have it, everybody. My God, that was a long episode. That is every single fatal snake bite on record in North, in uh, not North America, in the United States. In North America, it will be way bigger because of Mexico and Canada. I imagine there's a lot of snake bites in Mexico and Canada. Too. God damn it! I forgot how um, <laughs> I forgot how cranky I get in that episode. I really was getting frustrated at the number of preventable deaths that were occurring. I understand, right, if you're, like, in Australia, people get bitten by snakes all the time. It's not a common thing to die from a snake bite anymore, but snakes are everywhere. In the bush, you go walking, they're in your shoe, you put your shoe on, you get bit, you pick up your garbage can, and there's a snake. Sometimes that happens. That's not prevent, that's just an accident. That's just, it's awful and it's sad and it happens, but I understand it. I don't understand how many people can die from a preventable snake bite when you're in church. That's like one of the places it should be safe for you, is like your your religious um, temples and churches. Like, you shouldn't be under threat of death by t toxic snake venom. Um, <laughs> when you go to church, that's just, it's. am I crazy for thinking that? Oh God, all right. We got one more episode in our final part of the 2023 uh, recap episode series, whatever we're calling it. Uh, it is a, the most re recent episode uh, that we are going to cover. It's called The Death of Kenton Joel Carnegie. 
death of Kenton Joel Carnegie. Uh, this was a, a young man, a geologist, I believe, uh, who was killed by wolves up in Canada. Uh, it's a very well documented story. And uh, this, this, I can't remember, it, it will definitely be mentioned in the episode. Uh, this website essentially broke it down so much in detail that essentially I just got to read from the website all the, the incredible detail that they had put together. So yeah, thank you to those uh, people who I can't remember off the top of my head, but I'm sure I do say it in the episode. Um, so yeah, a very information-dense de- episode, uh, and I did have a few people message me afterwards and say, it was their favorite episode yet, which was great and surprising, but I really appreciated that. So uh, let's get into the death of Kenton Joel Carnegie, the last episode we'll talk about in our look back, our, our best of 2023 series. So here we go. So Kenton Joel Carnegie, he was a 22-year-old Canadian geological engineering student from Ontario, Canada, on a work term from the University of Waterloo. He died in a wild animal attack whilst he was walking near Points North Landing in Saskatchewan, Canada. Waste dumping had attracted black bears and timber wolves to the region, timber wolves being a subspecies of the North American grey wolf. Now, according to a trucker who had said that he'd met Carnegie in a cafeteria a few days before his death, he had passed around close-range photographs of large wolf pups that had approached him during walks in the nearby woods, and he'd been warned by the trucker that such encounters were extremely dangerous. A bush pilot also said that he'd warned Carnegie about an incident in which adult wolves had menaced others walking outside the camp, but Carnegie's family said he would not have taken the risks if he was warned. After reviewing evidence, which included wolf tracks left around the body, the finding of the coroner's inquest was that Carnegie indeed had been killed by a pack of wolves. If this is true, it would make his death one of the first verified cases of fatal wild wolf attacks in North America. Now, there have been a few documented uh, wolf attacks on humans in North America, but not as many in comparison to wolf attacks in Europe or Asia. Uh... And relatively few attacks uh, by other larger carnivores. In fact, I could only find records of about 30 fatal stories in which uh, wolves had killed people that were confirmed in all of history. And that is an episode we will go through um, <clears throat> on another date. Kenton Joel Carnegie's death is probably one of the most well-known and documented of these cases of wolf-human fatal contact. So, here's what happened. The story takes place in Points North Landing, in the province of Saskatchewan, Canada. It's a service center for uranium mines. Prior to the attack on Carnegie, timber wolves and black bears had fed on camp refuse and were seen often nearby. Ten months prior to Carnegie's death, a lone wolf attacked a 55-year-old uranium miner named Fred Desjardins. Desjardins? (coughs) Sorry, I'm dying who was jogging home from work in Lake in Key Lake. He wrestled with it until a busload of his colleagues arrived to rescue him by frightening the wolves away. They subsequently took Fred to a nearby medical facility. A few hours later, Key Lake Airport medical workers airlifted the man to Sask- uh, Sask- Saskatoon's Royal University Hospital, where he had a series of rabies treatments. After the assault on this man, Camco built an electric fence around Key Lake's landfill to prevent further predatory animal assaults on miners. 
Authorities hunted and shot the wolf that attacked the man, and they tested the wolf's bodies for rabies, but the test was negative. Kenton Joel Carnegie was in a university co-op program that allowed students to gain first-hand experience from visits to mining operations. He was flown into Points North Landing, a mining camp close to the Wollaskin Lake in North Saskatchewan. Bad weather had delayed his return. On November the 4th, 2005, Todd Svarskov, an experienced bush pilot, and Chris Van Gelder, a geophysicist, two of Kenton's camp companions, had an encounter with two aggressive wolves on the airfield close to camp. The two young men beat back the attack, photographed the wolves, and told everyone in the camp. The incident was apparently belittled. Even though two days before Kenton was killed, the young men were warned at a dinner at a local lodge by an experienced northerman, Bill Toppington, <clears throat> or Bill Topping, sorry, who was a part-time car pilot, uh, that is a guide who leads heavy trucks through the labyrinth of dirt roads in North Saskatchewan. He admired the pictures and told his guests that they were actually lucky to be alive. In the fall and early winter of 2005 at Point North Landing, there was evidence for circumstances facilitating an attack on humans by wolves, followed by the predictable exploratory attack by wolves on November 4th. That is, the events leading to the death of Kenton Joel Carnegie follow the pattern predicating attacks on humans as described for wolves and earlier for urban coyotes targeting children in parks. It is a pattern of increasing observations of and habituation to humans, followed by boldness and attacks on pets and livestock, followed by closing in and testing humans with skirmishes prior to the fatal attack. Both species of canids explore alternative prey in much the same manner. <clears throat> Unfortunately, nobody recognized the growing danger. Moreover, how wolves target people was not a question asked by current wolf biologists, probably due to the overriding belief that wolves do not attack people. Four wolves at Points North Landing had begun feeding on camp refuse that fall and were habituating, were habituating increasingly to human activities. <clears throat> November 8th, 2005, at about 3.30pm, Kenton Carnegie notified Van Gelder that he was going for a walk along the lake and expected to return 90 minutes later at about 5pm. Kenton had gone to the west shore of Wollaston Lake before when, going, <coughs> sorry, before when going fishing. This area is isolated and not open to unauthorized traffic. At about 6.15pm, because Kenton failed to appear for dinner, Chris Van Gelder and Todd Vaskoff began to search for him, but they could not find him within the camp boundaries. Todd saw Kenton's tracks in the fresh snow leaving the camp, but not returning. About 6.30pm, Chris and Todd and Mark Eichel, co-owner of the camp, drove out in a truck searching for Kenton. Fresh snow had fallen, and the party followed the clear footprints which headed south from camp. Because of the fresh snow, the tracks were easy to follow. Kenton's tracks headed towards the shore of the lake. When Eichel and his companions encountered wolf tracks, they reversed. They headed back to camp for Eichel to receive his rifle, a more powerful flashlight, and a radio. Now, it's worth noting there were no domestic dogs at North Point Landing, but if they were, they would have brought those as well. The party then drove to a nearby cabin, thinking Kenton might be there, but found nothing including no footprints. 
They returned by the truck to where they had left off, and soon saw that Kenton's footprints left the road and headed down a trail towards the lake. There were wolf tracks on the trail. They saw Kenton's footprints doubling back and found a concentration of wolf tracks. Mark Eichel shone about with the flashlight and saw what he thought was a body. He ordered everyone back to the truck, not wanting the others to see the sight. Neither Todd nor Chris ever saw Kenton's body. On the way back to camp, Mark Eichel called on the radio to Robert Dennis, an employee of the camp, a long-term resident of the North and an experienced hunter. Robert realized something tragic had definitely happened and contacted his wife, Rosalie Tassani Berseth, who was the local coroner at Wollaston Lake, and asked her to contact the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Next, Chris Van Gowler called the Mounties from camp and the company office was notified. At about 7.30pm, Eichel and Berseth returned by truck to check on Kenton. Eichel believed that Kenton was dead, but he wanted to make sure that his mind was not playing tricks on him and he wanted to get a second opinion. They parked the truck and walked down the ridge on the edge of the lake noting many wolf tracks. Mark Eichel shone with a flashlight and both could see Kenton's body. They saw exposed flesh and ribs from the belt up. The pants appeared to be on. Eichel and Berseth approached within 30 feet. They stayed only a couple of minutes and returned to camp to await the police and the coroner who arrived at about 7.35pm. Now neither Robert or Mark Eichel ever returned to the body until they went there with the RCMP constable Alfonsi Noe and coroner Rosalie Tassani Berseth. Kenton's body had been moved from where Mark Eichel and Bob Berseth had seen it two hours earlier. The distance moved was about 20 yards. Officer, Noe hands, Officer Noe's hand-drawn map indicating the body was dragged 20 metres, a distance which he paced out the next day. Now, a little bit of information. Wolves do often move their kills. Records of wolves moving a carcass over a mile do exist. Farmers regularly see this behaviour when their domestic sheep have been hunted, and wolves moving human bodies have been observed many times in history throughout Europe and Asia. When they went back to the body, they realised much more of the body had been consumed. There was no clothing down to the knees. Asked by Constable Noe what had consumed the body, Berseth stated he believed it was likely wolves. Asked by Constable Noe what kind of tracks Berthus had seen on location, Berseth replied he had seen only wolf tracks, likely ruling out an attack from a bear or other predator. Now, there had been four wolves running together about camp earlier, a black one, a white one, and two tan grey ones. The four had been seen on the runway close to camp on the day before, on the 7th of November. Berseth also saw three wolves running across the lake towards the kill site at about 7.45am on the morning following Kenton's death, that is, on the 9th of November. Eichel confirmed that four wolves had been seen near the camp and garbage dump site. At about 9.50pm, Constable Noe and the coroner began securing and inspecting the site. Constable Noe took the lead and the coroner and Bob Berseth and Mark Eichel followed him in single file. Now, moving in single file minimizes disturbances to the original tracks. It's also useful for, uh, yeah, preventing further attacks from wolves. 
As Constable Noe approached the site of Kenton's body, he saw two wolves near the body. He refers to sighting these two wolves repeatedly in his report and in conversations with others. He discharged two rounds from his shotgun into the air to scare away the wolves from the body. Constable Noe noted many wolf tracks on the land and on the snow of the frozen lake. Constable Noe ordered Berseth and Eichel to remain on the trail while he and the coroner went in to examine Kenton's body. Eichel was instructed by Constable Noe to discharge his rifle into the air, as the wolves could be heard in the bushes near the body. Bob Berseth made a fire from the trail, certainly would keep the wolves away. Constable Noe and the coroner examined and photographed the body and surroundings for 40 to 45 minutes. Then, Constable Noe called Constable Marion on a satellite phone and advised him of the condition of the body and the wolves in the area, at which point Constable Marion authorised the removal of Kenton's body and the return of the party to Point's North Landing. With the assistance of Eichel and Berseth, the coroner and Constable Noe placed Kenton's body in a body bag, which was tagged by Constable Noe with a time and date. At that time, Constable Noe discovered that his GPS unit was missing, and searched the immediate area for the last resting site. He instructed Eichel to ins- ensure that nobody be allowed near, or sorry, nobody allowed to enter the area, and was assured by Eichel that only Camco employees may use the road between their mine, which was a Cigar Lake mine, and the Points North Landing, and that they'd been instructed not to get out of their vehicles close to the camp. Constable Noe next took down witness statements. The following day, November 9th, 2005, at about 1pm, Constable Noe, Coroner Tassan Berseth and Bob Berseth attended again to the scene in daylight, taking pictures and analysing the scene. Here are their joint results, as summarised by the report by Constable Noe. Number 1. The footprints of Kenton heading south were followed by a wolf who stepped into Kenton's footprints. This wolf had thus cut off Kenton from the camp, as the two wolves had tried to do on November 4th with Chris and Todd. Constable Noe surmised that this wolf was following and possibly stalking Kenton. Number 2. Constable Noe followed Kenton's footprints south past the kill site, which went for a distance of about 60 to 80 metres, undisturbed by the previous day's activities. Here, Kenton was on the shoreline. Noe surmised that Kenton, at this point inside of camp, may have been trying to get someone's attention at the camp as there was a clear line of sight to camp. Number three. At this point, wolf tracks converged on where Kenton stood, so so says the report by Constable Noe. The wolf tracks were coming from the south along the lake shore. Several wolves approached from the south while one approached from the north. That looks like a hunting strategy executed by the wolves. Since several wolves approached Kenton from the south and one wolf from the north, there must have been at least two wolves involved. He was thus killed by at least three wolves and possibly by all four. Number four. Here, Kenton's footprints turned back towards the road, that is, up the trail heading north towards the camp. Number five. From here, it is 10 to 20 meters along the trail before the snow is disturbed, indicating an altercation. Constable Noe noted the snow was disturbed as if someone was rolling in the snow. Number six, footprints now head across the trail a little ways into the Musag shrub. The footprints indicate that Kenton was now running. He was half on the trail, half on the muskeg. There were lots of disturbances in the snow. 
Number seven, from here it is a short distance north to the kill site where the body was first discovered along with pieces of clothing. When seen a second time, the body was dragged about 20 yards away. And number eight, in between where the two sites were, the tracks indicated that Kenton stood and shed a lot of blood. Photos indicate considerable blood loss. A third place indicates that he stood and dripped blood. The search party found the body there. Constable Noe photographed the area until the battery of his camera gave out and he collected all clothing pieces that were not previously found. Noe received a CD with photos of Van Gelder and Schwafkoff's inter- interaction with the two wolves on the previous Friday, November 4th, from Christy Oysterich and expressed surprise that neither had informed him of that attack. Two conservation officers from the Saskatchewan Game Department, Kelly Crane and Mario Gaudet, arrived on the 10th of November in order to do their investigation. They stated in their report, Officers investigating the site and officers investigated the site and found numerous wolf tracks in the area. No other large animal tracks could be found. In the light of what was to follow, it is important to examine the nature and qualifications at tracking of the eight witnesses who were on the scene after Kenton was killed. The author of the essay has done a great job at this. So, the first and one of the most important witnesses was Mrs. Rosalie Tassani Berseth, who was not only the coroner for the Wollaston Lake, but also the chief of the Hatchet Lake Band and the director of education. She has three university degrees, is working on her doctorate in sociology, and has a long career in public service. She grew up in the northern bush, where her family was still nomadic and fully dependent on their skills at hunting, fishing, and trapping, and was tutored by her father in tracking. This articulate, humorous grandmother still goes hunting. Royal Canadian Mounted Police Constable Alfonso Noe is, like Chief Tassani Berseth, a native and a hunter and a long-standing northern resident. He produced a detailed report based on his and Miss Tassani Berseth's on-the-spot investigations, as well as questioning all witnesses to the scene. The next witness was Robert Dennis parentheses Bob Berseth, who is the husband of the coroner and an employee at Points North Landing. He has 17 years of experience in the region. He is married to the coroner and the chief, Mrs. Rosalie Tassani Berseth. He's an avid hunter. He killed the two wolves at the dump after the Kenton attack. He shoots bears that become a nuisance at the camp as well. Todd Svaskov, aviation officer and a well-known bush pilot, employee of the Sanders Geophysics Ottawa, working out of the camp. He testified at the coroner's inquiry that he had warned Kenton against going out. Mark Eichel was the co-owner of the camp, which is called Points North Landing, and is an experienced outdoorsman and hunter. He shot the third wolf, about 250 to 300 yards away after the Kenton attack. He claimed he would have seen a bear if it had been in the area. None had seen one for at least a month. Chris Van Gelder, geophysicist and employee of Sanders Geophysics, Ottawa, who was also working out of the camp. And finally, Kelly Crane and Mario Gaudet, who were conservation officers, they also examined the site on the 10th of November. And they noted that any black bear moving in or out of the site near Kenton's body would have been detected by the crisp snow by these men. Now, you might be wondering why the author of this essay uh, brings up the, you know, the fact that it was not a bear. No bear tracks were found. It was definitely a wolf. Later in the story, we'll get to it in a moment, uh, some people um, tried to dispute the claim 
that it was a wolf. They were, I guess you would call them wolf activists. And they don't like the idea of wolves being responsible for this attack uh, because they think it undermines the wolf's sort of, uh, you know, what they view as the wolf's innocence. I, I, I think they want to do PR for the wolves, basically. And they try to pin this on a black bear. Now, the tracks and signs at the scene were examined by two senior native persons, highly experienced by tracking, by two experienced northern hunters, by two conservation officers, by a seasoned bush pilot, and a highly trained physical scientist. Schwarzov, Van Gelder, and Eichel, who were both who were first on the scene, identified only wolf tracks. They were vindicated in this opinion by Bob Berseth, as he insisted he only saw wolf tracks as well. He, in turn, was vindicated by RCMP Constable Noe and Coroner Berseth, who not only only saw wolf tracks, but also saw and heard wolves so close to Ken's body that Constable Noe fired his shotgun twice to spook the wolves away and asked Mike Eichel to discharge his rifle. Conservation officers Crane and Gordet also only saw wolf tracks. In addition, Constable Noe and Coroner Sasani Berseth not merely identified wolves as the killer of Kenton Carnegie, but deciphered the track patterns left by wolves showing a classic hunt pattern by wolves. The wolf pack had split and the wolves approached their prey from the back as well as from the front, cutting off any possible retreat. They documented multiple attacks and a progression of the victim to the final collapse. Moreover, four wolves had been seen for weeks habituating to camp activity and ran in anticipation towards garbage disposal units and tore apart plastic garbage bags in the presence of humans, observed humans, and staged an unsuccessful attack on two camp residents four days before they killed Kenton Carnegie. Then came a big surprise. The Saskatchewan coroner asked for the case to be re-examined by scientist Dr. Paul Paquette and a wolf researcher, Professor Ernest G. Walker of the University of Saskatchewan. Before their confidential report was submitted, Paquette informed the popular news media that he recognized immediately that a black bear had killed Carnegie. In National Wildlife, the February-March 2007 edition, in an article entitled Sexy Beasts by Paul Tolley, we read, Wolves remain a boogeyman today, as illustrated by the death of a Canadian man in 2005. When Kenton Carnegie's mangled corpse was discovered, by the way, not a very tasteful way to put this, when Kenton Carnegie's mangled corpse was discovered near a remote Saskatchewan mining camp of Points North Landing, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police immediately blamed wolves. This story made headlines around the world. But when noted wolf biologist Paul Paquette of the World Wildlife Fund investigated, he recognized immediately that a black bear had indeed killed Carnegie. The problem was bias. Right from the start, Paquette says. When I looked at the photos, I immediately saw bear tracks, Paquette says. The National Geographic Society sent a team to film and reenact Kenton's death. Dr. Paquette acted as a consultant. Kenton's parents were so upset by the resulting quote-unquote documentary that they wrote a letter of protest to the society. Mrs. Tassani Berseth told the author of this article that she was so upset and offended by the manner that the camera and interview crew of the National Geographic had treated her. She told the author that she tried to speak to Paul Paquette at the inquest, but that he would not speak to her, um, that he would not speak with her or even make eye contact with her. Victims of the wildlife tragedies in North America tend to be blamed for the events, and it was not different in Kenton's case. 
It greatly upset Kevin's family, as did the brazen whitewash of wolves that could not only mislead the public, but also the judiciary. Distraught by the treatment they had received and the misattributions to their son, Kenton's parents turned to four scientists and asked them to do independent investigations. Three of these scientists agreed. Mark McNay, a senior biologist from Alaska. Brent Patterson, a seasoned scientist from Ontario with considerable wolf experience. And the third was Dr. Valerius Geist, who was the author of the essay of which this episode heavily leans upon. All three of these individuals wrote reports concluding that Paquette's claim that a bear had killed Kenton Carnegie was untenable and that wolves had killed Kenton Joel Carnegie. Paquette claimed in the eyewitness accounts that they were unreliable and biased and unsupported claims contrary to all evidence. Paquette, examining the photographs of the site as photographed by RCPM Constable Noe, mistook the tracks of wolves heading across the overflow on the lake ice, where wolves stepped through a thin layer of snow resting on water, which consequently, which consequently distorted their tracks as bear tracks. Now, Dr. McNay and Dr. Geist were both very familiar with wolves. He is, of course, from Alaska, and the author of this article was from Finland. All concluded that from the tracks in question, as photographed by Constable Noe, they were wolf tracks, and McNay demonstrated that the pattern of the distorted tracks on the overflow were of a regular caned trotting pattern, and quite different from the track patterns left by bears. That is, three independent peer reviews confirmed what eight eyewitnesses on the site had observed. It was wolves, not a bear. Paquette claimed that a number of forensic signs identified the responsible predator was a bear. And these were, number one, that wolves do not drag their prey from the kill site, but consume in situ. Yet, Kenton's body, he claimed, had been dragged some 50 paces. In North America, the experience of wolf biologists studying free-living wolves in the wilderness areas is that wolves feed on their prey in situ. In the author's personal experience with wolves uh, killing their neighbor's sheep, is that they always move their kills into cover about a mile from the sheep's pasture. The European accounts of how wolves deal with prey, livestock, and humans included is that they carry or drag into cover away from where they attack their prey close to human habituation. The resolution of what appears as opposites is quite simple. Wolves undisturbed consume their kills on the site. Wolves disturbed or close to danger move their kill. And that's what happened in the Kenton Carnegie case. The wolves fed at the kill site till they were disturbed by the first search party. When the second party arrived, the wolves had dragged Kenton's body about 20 meters, not 50 meters. Paul Paquette is quoted in the National Wildlife article on page 30, saying, The clothes had the clothes and skin had been stripped away, indicating the so-called banana peel eating technique common to bears, which uh, you would have seen on TikTok with that bear killing that fucking salmon. It's awful. The author posits, how could Paquette possibly know that? How many clothed human bodies handled by wolves have ever been available for examination in North America? Moreover, Paquette ignores that four wolves in question had plenty of experience ripping apart and peeling back the plastic of plastic garbage bags saturated with human smell in order to reach discarded camp food. Now, the wolves had not consumed the victim's liver and heart, which is also very uncharacteristic of wolves. Quote from the National Wildlife, Carnegie's heart and liver, the most desirable morsel for wolves, Paquette says, were left intact. Internal organs had been consumed, namely the ones surrounded by fat. 
And that fits with the author's own observations on how wolves, undisrupted by humans, uh, scheduled on their feeding of sheep they killed, fat first. Paquette did not take into account that wolves had been disturbed twice and were not able to finish with the corpse. Furthermore, on page 48 of Will Graves' book on the Russian experience with wolves, a Russian scientist reports that, that wolves, in feeding on a freshly killed moose, the heart, lungs, and liver had not been touched. Dr. Carlo Negrin from Finland made similar findings. However, all forensic science of a bear presumed that the bear was standing or moving in about 1.5 inches of fresh snow. For instance, if a bear had peeled away the clothing, then the bear must have had his paws on the ground in the snow. Also, the bear must have moved in on the kill site, leaving tracks, dragged the body away, leaving tracks, ran away when the first search party arrived, leaving tracks, returned to the area, leaving tracks, and then left again when the second party arrived, again, leaving tracks. And the bear would have done so all on land. There would have been massive bear track signs of multiple entries and exits and the massive trampling around of the body. It is clear from all photos and all forensic evidence that there were no bear tracks. A Finnish colleague spontaneously did identify a lonely fox track beside the the wolf tracks. And the question has to be asked, if they were able to find a fox track in all that snow, and the foxes are very small, how could they possibly have missed something as massive as a bear? All the forensic signs pointing to bear as proclaimed by Paquette are thus misidentifications, as the only bear that could have left such signs at the side of the tragedy must have been suspended in mid-air, as none of his paws reached the telltale snow. Furthermore, Paquette's repeated insistence that his approach alone was in the spirit of methodology and science uh, and was supported by superior evidence has demonstrably no basis, as shown by three peer reviews and the coroner's inquest. Moreover, Paquette failed to notice that the wolves involved were not merely habituating, but were targeting people as prey. Wolves do this in the very same manner as a coyote does in an urban park when targeting a child. Both canids explore humans very cautiously, and then over a protracted time period before mounting the first attack, exploratory attack, uh, which two wolves had done four days before Kenton's death, ironically, While coyote biologists recognize that smaller coyotes will target people as prey, those studying free-living wolves were denying that wolves were a danger to people. While the behavior of wolves thus signaled a disaster waiting to happen, nobody recognized it as such even after the failed wolf attack on Vengelder and Schwarfkov four days prior to the attack on Kenton. The belief in the harmlessness of wolves was firmly entrenched. The coroner ruled that only one expert witness would be allowed to testify on behalf of the Carnegies, and they chose Mark McNay. After listening to an eyewitness at the scene, Paul Paquette, and the presentation by Mark McNay, the six-person jury rejected Paquette's presentation unanimously, despite being assisted by counsel. The jury ruled that the cause of Kenton Carnegie's death was wolves. Kenton Joel Carnegie's memorial reads... Kenton was an honor student in his third year of the Geological Engineering Co-op program with the University of Waterloo and a graduate of O'Neill College in Oshkawa. Kenton was a man of profound integrity, intelligence, knowledge, and dedication and humor, and he will be deeply missed by all those whose lives he touched. He was a man of science, a brilliant artist, a music aficionado. 
Kenton had an incredible understanding of the land and an everlasting love of travel and exploration. Kenton is the cherished son of Kim and Laurie, a loving brother of Calvin and Brienne, dear grandson of John and Janine and Lillian Carnegie, dear nephew of Janie and Mike, Roxanne and Johnny, Debbie and Gord, Pam and Ray and Chris and Jamie. He was a treasured cousin of Jessica, Jonathan, Brennan, Rowan, Aidan, Katie, Brett, Sydney, Danny, Richard, Avery, Jared and James. And that's the story, guys. The story of how one man's death at the, well, I was going to say the hands, at the teeth of a pack of wolves uh, turned into a legal spectacle. And uh, it basically came down to... And that's it. It's all over. That's it, guys. Thank you so much for listening back to all those episodes, not just this week, but last week, and every week this week, this year that we've released a new episode. Uh, it's been a wild ride, guys. 2023 has been probably one of the best years of my life. Um, just going to get a little sappy for you right now. Um, biggest thing that happened, I got, I got engaged to my darling fiance, um, Celia, who's uh, a goddamn smoke show. And I love it a bit. Um, that happened this year, obviously. I got to travel a lot for work. Got to go to Cairns. Got to go to Melbourne and and the Gold Coast. Um, you know, theatrically had a bit of a break, but still did some really great stuff. Did Billy Elliot. Um, did Banging Denmark. A few other shows. War of the Worlds. All these shows nominated for lots of awards where I am. Um, and the podcast has grown uh, as well. Um, just thinking back like to this time last year, in the end of 2022, um, I released an episode, and if it got like a hundred listens in the first week, um, I would be stoked. That would be a great week for me. I'd be so happy uh, with with that, and I still would be, to be honest. Um, now, just to give you a little peek under the hood, I'll release an episode, and it's rare that we won't crack a hundred listens in the first few hours, in the first day. Um, very, very, very happy for that. Um, I'm so happy that you're here listening to the show, especially if you've listened to what I have to assume is nearly a two hour long episode right now, um, or more. Um, it's such a kick to get to do this job. Um, and it is a job now. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm earning not a lot, but a little bit of cash, um, from doing it. And that's all thanks to you. And it's thanks to the people on Patreon as well, um, who support me. So, uh, yeah, over the Christmas holidays, if you do find yourself with a surplus of cash and you like to support one of your favorite content creators or your podcasters, uh, do check out our Patreon. I really would appreciate it. But yeah, um, having a small but dedicated audience it's something I never thought I'd have, um, and I'm really, really grateful for it. Every single one of you, everyone who reaches out and sends me messages or emails, I love you. People who don't, who've never sent a message but have listened to a bunch of episodes, I love you. People who've never listened to an episode and this is their first one, this is a weird one to pick for your first one, but I do appreciate it as well. Um, it's been such a great year. Um, let's talk about goals. Looking at looking ahead to the rest of the uh, for the rest of the well, the next year, I should say. Uh, by the end of 2024, what do we want to have achieved? Well, my goals for this year, let's look back. Um, I wanted to, I think, have 80 episodes, which we've done. Uh, we had 40 episodes in the 2021 slash 2022 season. Um, 
my goal was to do the exact same and have 40 episodes. So that's, and I think that's good. 40 episodes is good because it allows me to have a couple breaks. I can still release weekly most of the time, but I can have a few breaks here and there if I need to. Um, and next year is looking like it's a very intense, busy year theatrically for me as well. So we might need a couple little gaps in there. Um, and in terms of like audience, I don't mind. I'm, I'm so happy with what we have right now. Um, if you if you have any friends who you think would like this show, um, please share it with them. Get them on board. I'd love to like grow our little community a little bit bigger. Um, yeah, that, that's that's basically it for goals. I don't really have any goals. I just want to keep doing what we're doing. Um, I've got heaps of great ideas for episodes next year. Um, heaps of. I'm thinking about redoing the logo, like the the podcast artwork. Um, I don't know. I'd like to know what you think about that. I, I like. I feel like it's kind of iconic, but also it's always good to change up a little bit. So yeah. Um, and, and speaking of just like how the show works, it's kind of always been a bit fluid, but I think I have officially like decided to lock in that each year it's a new season. So this is the end of season two and it's been a great season. Um, season three of Man Eaters will be coming out. I think we're going to start releasing new episodes um, either the third week in January or the first week in February. I'm just trying to work out my schedule a little bit, but you won't be without Man Eaters for very long. This this should be coming out close to New Year's Eve. Um, so if you, in the meantime, if you are jonesing for a new episode, why don't you go back and listen to one of the old ones that maybe you haven't listened to for a while, um, or you know check out other podcasts as well. They're great. But we, you won't be without the show for very long. We will be back in a couple of weeks with some new episodes. We are going to start going through some of the older episodes, like the very first ones from 2021, and redoing those in a more in-depth format. Like I said, either this week or last week, the um, episodes used to be 20 minutes long, and now they're over an hour long. So um, yeah, try to go back and do those big heavy hitters in more depth, uh, which will be great because we can get into the nitty gritty of a lot of those stories. So that's it, guys. That's the end of that's the end of 2023, the end of season two. I will see you guys next year for a brand new season of Man Eaters, more man eating stories, more man eater movies, more killer cryptids, more laid back chats, all the great stuff that we've come to love, uh, and just more of me hanging out with you guys and having a good time and learning more about the world around us. So have a great Christmas, if that hasn't already passed. Have a fantastic New Year's. Stay safe, and uh, I'll see you soon. And as always, last time of the year, stay safe out there. It's a jungle out.